World Theater. In the air. Dedicated to man's imagination, the theater of the mind. You know what our call letters WGN stand for, don't you? Welcome to WGN Radio Theater. Special three-hour presentation. And your hosts, Carl Amari and Lisa Wolf. All right, it's 10 minutes after 10 p.m. here on the WGN Radio Theater, world's greatest newspaper, Lisa. The vivacious one herself, right next to me. How you doing, Lisa? Hi, Carl. Glad to be here. It's a big Saturday night. It is. We have Shante Garth, our producer, in the booth. And we have um, five classic radio shows all the way to 3 o'clock in the morning. And we have a full five-hour show tonight, so we're really excited about that. Yep, we're going to start things off with You Bet Your Life. Our listeners have been clamoring for more Groucho Marx. So we have a Groucho Marx episode for you from 1955. After that, a true crime case on Whitehall, 1212 from 1952. Then we have The Lives of Harry Lyme. Orson Welles stars as Harry Lyme from 1951. Then Robert Young stars as uh, Jim Anderson, Father Knows Best from 1950. And then we'll wrap things up with a Gunsmoke episode from 1956 starring William Conrad. Right. And before that, we usually have our little segment, which used to be Guess That Song. We've decided to move on yeah. from Guess That Song. We're retiring we, it. Should yeah. we have taps? Should we play taps for yeah, it? Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Because we're on to bigger and better here. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're going right. to do what you want. <laughs> our new segment. <laughs> Once I get going, it's oh, hard I know. to stop. Our new segment is called Just the Facts. Yeah. You'll learn a little bit more about it's going to be some fun facts, trivia, and history from the year of the radio show that we will be playing in that hour. Okay. So we can look forward Boy. to a little and uh, we, background And we haven't rehearsed this. I don't know what she's going to be talking about. Not We're just going to have some fun with it. And all that begins right after these words. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our new Just the Facts segment. I hope you all recognize that theme song. Yeah, I've heard it once or twice. Once or twice, (laughs) uh, pretty much here on this radio show from Dragnet. And we are going to be talking about 1955, which is the radio show we'll be playing in Hour One, You Bet Your Life. So first of all, the best happiest, most magical place on earth open July 17th, 1955. Disneyland. 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 It is Disneyland. Let's hear that. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the heartbacks that have created America with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. I can tell you that Mike Estella did not digitally remaster that clip. Absolutely not. But this was <laughs> actually recorded in 1955 sure. by Walt Disney himself. Oh, wow. And uh, what a uh, what do you think he did to pave the way for more magic? The guy was a genius. He certainly was. And his was. head is frozen, I think, right now. <laughs> that's that's probably <laughs> Cryogenically frozen. I think that's true. Also, now, in 1955, we had the first large home microwave oven. That's when, actually, they started going into people's homes. It was 
invented in 45. That's when the patent was actually filed. But Tappan introduced a large 220 Gosh, remember volt Tappen? home micro. They were all Tappan. They right. uh, and that's what we did. You have a microwave oven growing up? I think up? as a kid we had a microwave oven. I think you don't remember? Well, I mean, not when I was real young. So probably around. I would guess we got our first microwave oven probably in the in 60s. Like, I was going to say late 60s. I kind of remember getting them when we got it. It was sort of a big deal to yeah. have it. Oh yeah. And at this point, who doesn't have a microwave? Everyone has a microwave. Well, I now. don't know about that. I mean, pretty much every I don't know. household. I think so, but maybe we would be surprised. Yeah. And other than that, Rosa Parks. This was 1955. Refused to give up her bus seat. This was in Montgomery, sure. Alabama, yeah. December 1st of 55. Wow. And of course, this event was a catalyst for the civil rights movement in the United States. Wow. Okay. Great yeah, stuff. 1955. Great it was uh, the same year that You Bet Your Life uh, was right. broadcast. And we have a You Bet Your Life episode for you right now. But first, I want to do uh, remind all of our listeners about our website that has five free classic radio shows waiting for you. Now, when you go to 100radioshows.com. So 100radioshows.com. You go to the top of the website, you just put your email in, and you will be sent five classic radio shows digitally remastered as a thank you for listening to this show. You'll get Suspense with Gregory Peck, Jack Benny, you'll get Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Gunsmoke, and Fibber McGee and Molly. Five shows, full-length shows, digitally rem- uh, remastered by Mike, sent to you instantly. As soon as you put your email in and hit uh, send, you'll get it within like a minute. I was with Dave Plyer the other day, and he did it, and he had him like instantly. He did it while you were talking Yeah, we him? were talking, and yeah. we, had, we had dinner, and he did it, and boom, he had it. Boom, right to your email. It was like, wow, I already <laughs> have. magic. Now, at that same website, there are seven collections that have 100 radio shows in each one of those collections. And if you use the promo code RADIO at checkout, you will save 70% off the regular price. So our listeners get not only five free shows, but they save 70% on anything they want to buy. But make sure you use the promo code RADIO at checkout. All right, You Bet Your Life was a game show hosted by the great Groucho Marx of the Marx Brothers fame. And the assistant and announcer on the show was George Fenneman. It began on ABC Radio way back in 1947. It made a transition to television in 1950, but for many years it overlapped. It was on radio and TV. Each show offered a secret word like house, money, hat, etc. And contestants would banter about their life with Groucho. And if by chance they said the secret word, well, they'd get $100. Not bad. I love right? the concept. Get 100 bucks, And then they'd also win money for answering questions put to them by Groucho at the end of the show. And oftentimes there were celebrity contestants, too. You Bet Your Life enjoyed a long run bowing out in 1961. So from 47 to 61. You bet your life. So uh, the secret word on this particular episode is clock. Groucho Marx, George Fenneman, January 31st, 1955, uninterrupted. Here is You Bet Your Life. Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is clock. C-L-O-C-K. Really? You bet your life. (laughs) 
The more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You'll Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood. And here he is, the one, the only... Groucho! That's me, Groucho Marx! Well, here I am again with $1,000 for one of our couples. Fenneman, who's first to try for it? Well, Groucho, just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected a clerk from the unemployment office, Mrs. Louise Ludwig, and her partner, Mrs. Marjorie Kendall, was selected because of her unusual occupation. And here they are. Ladies, come right up here and meet Groucho Marx. Well, welcome, kids, for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. And if you say the secret word and divide $100, it's a common word, something you see every day. Mrs. Uh, Louise Ludwig... That's you. Where, where, where are you from, uh, Louise? I'm from Honolulu. From Honolulu? Yes. Oh. How long have you been away from uh, Honolulu? Uh, since, it's been uh, many years since I was 12 years old. <laughs> it's been I... many years since you were 12 years you old? Are... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I think Shall I tell right. you how many years? Though? Well, I don't want to pry into your private life, Mrs. <laughs> Ludwig. You're a very attractive young girl. I'll keep my mouth shut. And you, you're, you're married, huh? Yes, Mr. Uh, what does your husband do? Uh, He's the driver's license examiner for the motor vehicle department. Oh. Well, I'll be mighty nice to you. <laughs> Marjorie Kendall, you were chosen because of your unusual occupation. Now, what sort of work do you do? You do? I'm a secretary and part-time genealogist. Oh, I see. Well, uh, what is a, a genealogist? One who I uh, trace family lineages, family trees. Now, Margie, how, how did you become interested in family trees? Were you looking for termites or...? Uh... No, I was looking at my own family history. Uh-huh. I started looking at my family once, but I stopped when I got to Chico. It was frightening me. <laughs> <laughs> now, how far did you trace your family? To 445 A.D. I'd be satisfied if you could trace me back to 445 A.M. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure I want to go back there again. <laughs> now, Marjorie, why should people want to know their family trees? Uh, isn't that a little snobbish? Oh, no. It's, an in, it's a curiosity on the part of almost everyone to know what their family name means. How about the name Marx? Could you, could you look up the family tree? Oh, I did several years ago with you did? several other Hollywood personalities. Is that so? Why, why should you look up my name? Well, because it was... Uh, you were an interesting person, and I've always admired you and were my favorite uh, comedian. <laughs> I've never did anything that any other boy couldn't do. <laughs> now, what did you find in my family tree? Oh, mostly, of course, a, you have a beautiful crest. <laughs> Say, you look pretty good yourself. <laughs> what do you mean, a beautiful crest? I'm... Well, there's... Um, in the crest? You mean a family crest? Yes, sir. Like two horse thieves swinging from a potted palm? <laughs> two uh, wings that were partly crossed and uh, oh, a little bit of gold embellished on them. And... You mean I had wings? Uh, part of the, that uh-huh. was the crest of the Marx family? Yes, sir. You mean my forefathers were fan dancers, eh? <laughs> now, Mrs., uh, you're with the unemployment uh, office? Yes, Mr. Marx. Uh-huh. Where, where is that? Uh, I work in the harbor area. In the water? <laughs> and uh, uh, what are your duties there? Well, I attempt to uh, find positions for people who uh, are in need of them. Could you find a position for me? 
Well, very possibly. What kind of work are you interested in? <laughs> Why should I be interested in work with the racket I've got? <laughs> now, suppose I'm unemployed. Uh, you can never tell about sponsors, you know. Uh, of course, the DeSoto Plymouth is <laughs> different, huh? In a DeSoto, you drive without shifting. You ought to be very happy with me. I'm about as shiftless as they come. <laughs> Oh, yes. What kind of jobs do you have the most calls for? Well, uh, um, highly skilled technicians, and, uh, of course, uh, good secretaries are always hard to get. Yes, especially (laughs) for a man of my age. (laughs) Even fair ones I'm having difficulty with. Now, how is the unemployment situation out your way right now? Uh, As I say, that uh, demand for highly skilled uh, remains prevalent, uh, but the mackerel season is uh, The mackerel under- season mm-hmm. is on now? Yes. Well, how many unemployed mackerel are there? <laughs> That's as fishy a story as I ever heard. <laughs> okay, now let's see if you'll get the chance at the $1,000. Fenneman, explain the rules. Well, you bet as much of your $20 as you want on each of four questions, and the couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the $1,000 DeSoto Plymouth question at the end of the show. Okay, here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You've selected personalities of the 20s. Here's your first question. How much will you bet? Uh, $10. $10? $10? Okay. The Bambino was undisputed king of the ballparks during the 20s. What was his name? Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth is right. And you're on your way. You have $30. Remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. Now, how much of the $30 will you bet on your second question? $29. 29, huh? Okay. Who defeated Jack Dempsey twice the second time in 1927? He was an ex-Marine. Gene Tunney. Gene Tunney is correct. You're climbing now. You have $59. You're climbing with $59. Here's your third question. How much are you going to go for? 59. 55. Okay. The hop-along of the 20s was a straight-shooting cowboy with a horse named Tony. What was the cowboy's name? Uh, Tom Mix. Tom Mix is correct. $114. And here's your last chance to be the other couples. How much of the 114? Oh. All of it? Okay, you're gamblers. What was the name of the colorful revivalist who during the 20s drew thousands of people to his meetings? Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday is correct. And you wind up with $228. Thank you very much. Uh, Fenneman, just a moment. There's something I want to clear up. Remember last week in the quiz, one question was, what do you call the Australian and New Zealand troops of both world wars? You remember that? I remember the question. Well, the Austrian war bride and her husband, she said uh, diggers, and I said that was wrong because the official name was Anzacs. Well, a lot of people said diggers was the slang name for him, so we're sending Mr. and Mrs. Schwander $180. Fortunately, it wasn't enough to affect the standings for the big question, so thank heaven that remains the same as it turned out on the show. All right, on with it, Fenneman. Who's next? Uh, we invited some women from the Federation of State Societies to the program tonight, and we selected Mrs. Florence Parsons. Her partner is a husband from the studio audience, Mr. Bob Smith. Folks, come on in here and meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, folks, to You Bet Your Life. You say the secret word and you'll win $100 between you. It's a common word, something you see every day. Mrs. Uh, Florence Parsons, eh? You're from the Federation of State Societies? Yes, I am. Uh, what, what is that? Is that the Confederate Army? It's an organization 
of the people from the different states as they've come into California. I see. Oh, I see. Where, where, where are you from? I'm from uh, Williamsburg, Massachusetts. Williamsburg? What part of California is that in? Uh... Oh, that's not in California. It is in Massachusetts. <laughs> Williamsburg, is, isn't that where uh, Cal Coolidge uh, came from? No, he really was born in Vermont, but he lived in Northampton, just oh. a few miles from Williamsburg, oh, ten miles. Did you know uh, Cal Coolidge? Slightly. They said that I had a longer conversation with him than did any congressman that ever cooled his heels in the White House. And a congressman can cool plenty of heels, too. <laughs> do you remember that conversation at all, uh, Mrs. Yes, Parsons? I do. Could you give us a, a little of it? Well, I was visiting a neighbor of Coolidge, and... Uh, their farms adjoined, and I was sitting in the garden looking over the hedge when Coolidge was seen approaching, and I wanted to escape, but my friend... Why, are you a Democrat? Uh, no, I wasn't, but I was afraid to meet him. So he came through the hedge, and uh, when I was introduced, he said, Oh, from Los Angeles, a beautiful town, I have spoken there. I hope you'll have a pleasant visit and a safe journey home. Well, that was very nice. That was about that. the extent of our conversation. Well, that was quite a conversation. <laughs> I don't think Mrs. Coolidge ever got that much out of him. Uh, your name is Bob Smith? That's correct. What sort of work do you do, Bob? I work for a sewing machine company. A sewing machine? Well, you don't look like you did any sewing. Uh... No, I'm a motorman on a sort of machine. You're a motorman on a sewing machine? <laughs> well, where do you drive it? Up Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> I suppose old Bobbin pulls it, huh? <laughs> well, Bobbin is on a sewing machine. I happen to know because I'm an old so-and-so myself. <laughs> now, Bob, where is your home? I was born in Seattle, Washington, but I left there when I was two years old. Oh, you left there when you were to Wanderlust, stay. Eh? Uh, That's pretty early to leave home, isn't it? Where, where did you go? To Alaska. So Alaska is your home, eh? No, I went from there to Portland, Oregon. Is uh, Portland your hometown? No, from Portland I went to Niagara Falls. <laughs> oh, that's your hometown, huh? No, went to Washington, D.C. For a two-year-old, you said you got around. <laughs> well, I can keep this up as long as you can. Where did you go after that? Washington, D.C., I went to Dallas, Texas. The sheriff never got tired, huh? <laughs> well, I give up. Let's leave you right where you are and don't move until I come back to you, will you? I'm liable to be in Tampa by the time I get there. <laughs> Mrs. Parsons, uh, how old are you? Old? Why, we never talk of age in the Federation. We are <laughs> I'm sorry, Mrs. Parsons. How young are you? Well, the gypsies tried to steal me when I was five years old. I may steal you tonight, Mrs. Parsons. This man is a gypsy. This man is a gypsy? Yes, sir. You're a gypsy? You don't look like a gypsy. I thought all gypsies wore bananas. I mean bandanas and <laughs> played the accordion and wore gold earrings. Why, you look just like me. 
Why is that? A lot of gypsies do. Anybody care to have his palm read? <laughs> are, you, are you married, Bob? Uh, yes, I am. How, how did you meet your wife? Uh, my father introduced her to me. Well, that was a very friendly gesture on your part. Why was your father so interested in this girl? Well, he gave $1,500 for her and selected her for, to be my wife. It's a lot of money for one girl. <laughs> how come your father paid $1,500 for your wife? Well, that's a custom among the English gypsies and among all the gypsies. Always pay $1,500? No, not necessarily $1,500. Can you $1, get one for six ninety-eight or something like that? <laughs> Hardly. How much did your wife weigh at this time? About 70 pounds. $1,500 and 70 pounds. Let's see. That, that comes to about $22 a pound. That's a pretty stiff price to pay for a wife. You can buy caviar for $22 a pound. Oh, this is pretty lonely in the evening sitting there with a dish of caviar. <laughs> you think your father made a shrewd investment, Bob? I think so, because a uh, very short time after he was married, my wife made enough telling fortunes to pay my father back. Oh. <laughs> she should have read her own fortune first, and she'd be $1,500 ahead. <laughs> and has this marriage turned out successfully? Have you been happy, Bob? Uh, yes, very successfully. I got about the best girl in the world. Well, you ought to know. You've been all over the world. Now, Mrs. Parsons, uh, tell us something about your work. What sort of work do you do? Well, my work is uh, very complicated. It uh, consists of so many details. We uh, have uh, picnics for every state in the Union. They have... I used to entertain at picnics. I was known as a picnic ham. <laughs> You in see, a you sandwich? Say, in, yes, in a sandwich. <laughs> I was boiled a good deal of the time. <laughs> well, what is the largest of these picnics? Iowa is by far the largest. We often have 130,000 at the Iowa picnic. And Imagine, 130,000 people at a picnic. Oh, we to have me, a... it's no picnic if there's more than two people, Mrs. Parker. <laughs> and sometimes we... even then it's no picnic. <laughs> How much does your husband pay for you, uh, Mrs. Parker? Uh, nothing at all. He got you for nothing? Well, yes. he stole you. <laughs> that is as you think. Well, I certainly do. I think you were a, a big bargain. Would you? Have you been a good wife, Mrs. Parsons? I think I have. Uh -huh. Fairly good. Oh, you're qualifying it now. Yes. Huh? All the time you've been married, you've been good for nothing, eh? <laughs> That's an old joke, but I've chased this gypsy so much tonight, I'm getting weary, eh? <laughs> well, this has been an interesting conversation, and if I ever want my palm red, I'll stick it in the bucket of red paint. <laughs> Let's see how well you make out in the race with $1,000. Now, you've got to run your $20 into more than our other couples. I can't tell you how much our first couple won, but Fenneman's off stage to remind our listeners. The unemployment clerk and the genealogist won $228. Now, here we go. Uh, you have $20. You selected scrambled proverbs. How much are you going to bet on your first question? $10. You can bet anything you want. $10? Is that all right with you, Florence? Yes. I'll call you Florence. Huh? Certainly. Now, here's your first question. You're betting $10. What is this proverb? Adult and his legal tender are quickly disassociated. Uh, man and his money are soon parted. A fool and his money are soon That's parted. That's right. A fool and his money are soon parted. Now you have $30. Remember, you're going for $1,000 tonight. Now, how much of the 30 are you going to risk? 25 
A rotating boulder will not amass a form of lichen. A rolling stone will gather no more. A rolling stone gathers no more. $55. Florence, you're a pretty sharp cookie. <laughs> now, how much are you going to bet on your third question? Fifty. Fifty? Yes, fifty. Here we go. It is inadvisable to enumerate fowls in your possession prior to the moment of their nativity. Do not count your chickens before, before they hatch. Is that what you're up? $105. Florence, have you been a chicken thief in your earlier days? No, I never was. Oh, well, I don't. <laughs> a goose thief or a duck thief or any kind no, of fowl? No, nothing of that kind. Oh, that's a foul question. Here's your last chance to beat the other guy. <laughs> what is this proverb? How much are they betting? They haven't bet bet all of it. Is that right? Uh, you want to bet all of it? I don't know. Okay. A dual cranium is more acceptable than a single. Uh, two heads two are better than two one. Two heads are better than one. Clarence, put it there. There's any yard because you wind up with two hundred and ten dollars. Well, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Congratulations to you both. That's quite a gal. Sure you? is. Well, Groucho. The we all have a tendency to emphasize youth too much, and you see a gal like that, and it's really wonderful. The, uh, the secret word, you know, is still clock. I know, I understand that. Well, we invited some... My memory isn't faltering yet. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Even though yours is. No innuendos from you. We invited some Hawaiian dancing girls to the program tonight. Now you're talking. <laughs> uh, just before we went on the air, our studio audience selected Heilani... Kawela. Never mind this nonsense. Bring her in here, will you? And her partner is a fencing master, Monsieur Jean Aeromance. And here they are. Folks, come over here and meet Groucho Marx. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome, welcome to the DeSoto Plymouth dealers, huh? Say the secret word and divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. A fencing master and a hula dancer, eh? Well, this may be interesting. He may cut off her grass skirt. Hilani, <laughs> Hilani Kawela, is that right? Hey, Elani. 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 Well, where are you from, Elani? The islands. The islands, eh? The islands. Uh, which islands? Coney, Catalina, or a thousand? I'm from Hawaii. Hawaii? Uh, is that the correct pronunciation? I thought it was Hawaii. Uh, no, that's not right. Uh, Hawaii is correct. Oh, you couldn't say Hawaii just once, eh? Please? That's not correct. What, what isn't correct? Hawaii. I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> Tell her, Mom, it was a great fight, but I won. <laughs> and Mr. Mr. Harriman's, eh? If you think I'm going to watch you tonight, you're crazy. Eh? <laughs> you're a fencing master, eh? Where are you from? Eh? Brussels, Belgium. Oh, from Belgium, eh? Uh, you were raised in Belgium? You're sort of a Brussels sprout, then, in other words. <laughs> but are you married? Yes, sir. Some fencer. He's got a sword hanging over his own head. Eh? <laughs> uh, are you married? Eh? No, no. Oh, Thank the Lord. <laughs> and praise the grass skirts. Eh? I guess it'd be pretty hard for a hula dancer to nod her head yes when the rest of her is saying no. <laughs> where, where do you do your hula dancing? Well, I um, work mostly casuals, one night stands. Where do you do your work, uh, Jean? At the Los Angeles Athletic Club and the University of Southern California. Oh, well, that's a good place for a fence. Exactly what do you do there? Do you, do you pick it? No, I teach fencing because fencing is a very 
popular sport now. It's very becoming. Is that so? It's increasing in popularity? Very, well, very what much. is there about fencing that makes it so popular? Well, uh, for women, for instance, grace, poise, elegance. For men, fast reaction. Then also the spirit of sportsmanship. You mean puncturing somebody is a sportsmanship? <laughs> well, in some way, yes. You carry bicycle tape in your back pocket or something? <laughs> Suppose I wanted to take up fencing, what would I need? Uh, first of all, a mask, jacket. What do you think I'm wearing now? <laughs> I was saying a mask, a jacket, trousers, and tennis shoes, if possible. Tennis shoes? What's that, for running? No, you want slide when you make your lunch. Uh-huh. I make my lunch? Don't I carry my lunch with me? <laughs> well, wouldn't it be nice if I had a sword, too? We don't use sword anymore. You don't use a sword in fencing? What no. do you use, a mix master? <laughs> no, we use... What do you mean, no swords? We use foil, epée, and saber. Uh, epée? Isn't he one of the seven dwarfs? No, it's a blade. Well, epée was a blade, I remember. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the hula, for example. Just what is the hula? Besides a good way to keep warm on a cold night. Uh, tells a story by dancing. Uh-huh. And all this time I've been wasting my time reading books. <laughs> what kind of stories does it tell? Uh, mysteries? There's no mystery about the hula. Well, doesn't that depend on whether the uh, grass and the skirt needs cutting? <laughs> What kind of stories can you tell by dancing? Oh, you tell love stories, and stories about the trees, the sun, the moon. They're all very simple stories. Mm -hmm. Well, how does dancing tell a story? I don't understand. Well, it tells a story by using the hands and the arms. Mm -hmm. it, um, um, each gesture you make each... has some significance, I suppose? Yes, that's right. And I bet you've told many a story and then tried to wiggle out of it, huh? <laughs> Well, you've been a very interesting couple, particularly you, Alani. And if I ever do any fencing, you can be sure it won't be with a hula dance. <laughs> now you're going to play your bet your life. You run your $20 into more than the other couples, and you'll get a chance at the $1,000 question. I can't tell you how much the other couples won, but Fenneman's going to remind our listeners. The unemployment clerk and the genealogist are still leading with $228. Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected modern composers. Here's your first question. How much would you bet? Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Ten dollars? Okay. Who composed Begin the Begin? Cole Porter. Cole Porter is right. Thirty dollars. Remember, you're going for a thousand dollars. How much of the thirty are you going to try? Twenty. Twenty? Twenty? Who composed Summertime? Gershwin. Gershwin is right. Now you got fifty dollars. Here's your third question. How much of the fifty? Forty? Forty, you're going to bet? All right. Who composed I've Told Every Little Star? Take a guess. Talk it over. And if you don't know, guess. Well, the bell is, uh, the bell is told. It was Jerome Kern. You should have known that. It's a very, very popular and very well-known song. You now have ten dollars. Well, that's a shame. Now, that's your last chance to beat the other couples. How much of the ten will you bet? Ten. Shoot the works? Okay. Who composed White Christmas? Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin is right. And you wind up. You 
grand total of $20, and that means the unemployment clerk and the genealogist with $228 get the chance at the DeSoto Plymouth $1,000 question. Here comes the winning couple, Groucho, the unemployment clerk and the genealogist. All set for the $1,000 DeSoto Plymouth question. All right, here we go for $1,000. I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you, so think carefully and please no help from the audience. Here it is. One of our presidents served only 30 days, the shortest service in presidential history. For $1,000, tell me who was this president. All right, what is the answer you two have decided upon? Yes, we're wrong, but we thought Buchanan. No, I, I'm sorry. It was <laughs> William Henry Harrison. That was a tough question. But anyway, you won... How much did they win? $228. You won $228, so that means the big question next week will be worth $1,500. Well, you lost the big money, but you won $220 in the quiz. Congratulations and thanks to both of you and to all of our contestants on the show tonight. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for the Groucho Marx Show, when the big question will be worth $1,500. And don't miss Groucho's television show, also presented by the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth. Two great cars, both products of the Chrysler Corporation. By the way, folks, if you have nothing better to do, you might curl up with the February issue of Coronet Magazine and read the piece about me by my brother Harpo. Doesn't make any sense, but I think you'll enjoy it. The February Coronet Magazine. Good night, folks, and remember... Now just be sure to visit your DeSoto Plymouth dealer. Folks, here's a reminder from the National Safety Council. Keep your car in safe operating condition. You bet your life. Transcribed from Hollywood is produced by John Goodell. Directed by Robert Dwan and Bernie Smith. Music by Jerry Fielding. This is George Fenneman signing off for the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers from coast to coast. You bet your life, Lisa. You bet your life. I, no, I'd I rather bet I yours. No, I don't want to bet my life. You bet <laughs> no, your life. No, no, I'll bet yours. January 31st, 1955, the secret word clock. It was sponsored by DeSoto Plymouth. Uh, it was funny because he talked uh, a little bit about how you used to have to shift the cars back yep. then. You know, and this was the first year... That uh, it was shiftless. Yeah, yeah. they didn't have. He didn't have to, so it was an automatic transmission. I think you have to say that word really carefully, or it sounds like something else. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, speaking of Colaguard, we were talking about Colaguard earlier. We were. We were. Yeah. Remember, we were talking. Oh, about you mean co- in the, the car? Job. Yeah, Colaguard. Yep. I think it's better than a colonoscopy. I did Colaguard. Yeah. Did it's you like it? Better than a what? Was did it you good? Call it? What did you call it? Colonoscopy. <laughs> what is it? Colonos. What is it? 
<laughs> if you think about it, maybe it's uh, harder. Colonoscopy. Copy. Mm, okay. Right. I I used I did Cologuard. My doctor told me. I just that got one in the mail. I, I'll, I'll give you instructions. <laughs> this is not for radio consumption. No, it's not. Let's move on. Yeah, it's not. But anyway, uh, that was you. But you're like, you know, the reason why it sounded so tight and so great, and like the jokes were right on, and he was super fast and yeah. everything, is because they used to tape. This used to go forty, fifty, sixty minutes in front of a studio audience, and they would, you know, talk with the people, and then editing, they would edit it down later, and then it was broadcast. So it was it was basically broadcast live on tape, they right. called that. And then the same thing, they would, you know, film it as well. Again, the whole 40, 50, 60 minutes, and then edit that down as well. And what you watched on television, which I watch all the time on Antenna TV, they have You Bet Your Life. And when you watch it, it's so fast and quick, and he's right on the money. And he's very quick. He is. As well. He is great. Very but you, you know, but it, but there's a lot that can be done in yes. editing. Uh, hope you enjoyed. You bet your life. Let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. All right, Lisa. In our next hour, we have Whitehall One Two One Two which was a true crime series with an all-British cast. It was produced here in the States by Willis Cooper, who created Lights Out. Um, Really good series. I think you're going to like it. And that is coming up in just a few minutes. So stay with us, folks, right here on WGN. We uh, will be here until 3 o'clock in the morning with Classic Radio. Stay tuned. All right, Hour 2 of the WGN Radio Theater. I'm your host, Carl Amari. To my right, the vivacious one herself, Lisa Wolf, and in this hour, Whitehall one two one two from nineteen fifty two. Uh, a little later, we'll have Orson Welles in the Lives of Harry Lyme. Really interesting because there was a movie, as you know, called The Third Man, and that starred Orson Welles as Harry Lyme and Joseph Cotton in that movie. It was so popular that radio producer. Um, Harry Allen Towers said to Orson Welles, let's do a radio show about the third man. And he's like, well, how can we do that? I died in the movie. I mean, my character, Harry Lyme, you can't. And he said, no, no, we'll do it. We'll do a prequel. Well, the, the whole radio series will be about your character, Harry Lyme. He's like, well, we can't call it the third man. You, you know, I, that movie, I die in that movie. He's like, well, we'll call it the lives of Harry Lyme based on, you know, the the character from The Third Man. And it was very popular, and we have an episode in our next hour on that. And then uh, Robert Young in Father Knows Best, uh, primarily remembered as a television show, but there was a long-running radio show. And then Gunsmoke, William Conrad as U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. In fact, pretty much all of these shows, except for Orson Welles, uh, Lives of Harry Lyme, and Whitehall 1212, every other show, You Bet Your Life, Father Knows Best, and Gunsmoke, all air on Antenna TV. Mm-hmm. So you can watch them, you know, and, and we're playing the radio shows, and then you watch the uh, TV counterparts yep. on Antenna TV. We're also going to play our game, Just the Facts, brought to you by Cat's Pride. And that's in our next hour, so stay... Oh, no. What, that's in our, this hour. This hour, right. <laughs> we're going to just go to a quick commercial break, and we'll then we're right going to play our game and also play um, uh, Whitehall 1212. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. 
This is our new segment, Just the Facts, Fun Facts, Trivia, and History. This hour will be from 1952, which is the year that we are going to be playing for Whitehall 1212. Yeah. Yeah. This is all brought to you by Cat's Pride. Of course it is. So, okay, this is one of my favorite things. I Love Lucy included the most popular and remembered skit from the show, Oh, this has what to be it? the chocolate, and it's on the conveyor Ooh, yeah, belt. That is a, that is a good one. But That's not the this number one. one. That's well, a, okay. Then that then then she's crushing um, uh, tomatoes or something like that, or cherries or something. No, it's not. It's not she's that stamp, one. St- stomping. Uh, oh, uh, grapes. Grapes. Stomping grapes. No, it's not that one. But again, one of the most popular and remembered. Well, skits I just the named show. the two most popular. Well, then you forgot about this one. Not no. The most popular. She's eating the candies. Okay, let's hear it. Hello, friends. I'm your vitamin vegemin girl. <laughs> vitamin vegemin. Vitamin Do you poop out at parties? <laughs> you poop out at parties. Are you unpopular? The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. Now you pick up the bottle. Oh. A little higher. That's right. The answer to all your problems is in this little bottle. Vitamin vegemin. Vitamin vegemin contains vitamins, meat, Vegetables Meat. and minerals. <laughs> yes, with vitamin vegemin, you can spoon your way to health. <laughs> All you do is take a tablespoonful after every meal. Now you take some. Oh. Anyway, I remember, yeah. All right, this is, this is a fantastic was, was definitely. All right, it's way up, way up there. And she was like, because there was alcohol in it or something, she started getting yep. like a little she was punchy. A little, she was punchy. I so, remember that. Great, great episode. That was 1952. Also, the most popular Christmas gifts from 1952 were, now this is going to bring you back some memories. Me, you never get me any Christmas gifts. Yes, I always give you a Christmas gift. Do you? What did I give you this year? Oh, you got me socks. Well, no, it sounds funny when you say that, but be more specific. Yeah, you got me she got me socks that are with that have my initials on them. There you it's go. Pretty. That was pretty Personalized nice. Personalized socks. Anyways, the most popular Christmas gifts from 1952. Some of them were Mr. Potato Head, right, which was the first toy advertised on American television. Wow. The Slinky Dog. Oh, the dog. The Slinky Dog. I didn't like the Slinky Dog. Why? I like the Slinky. Why? But not the Slinky Dog. What's the matter with the dog? I'll guarantee you, the Slinky Dog did not sell as well as the Slinky itself. Well, and a Pez candy dispensers, oh, which had Pez. of course are still sold Man, today. Nineteen fifty-two. Pez was around. Fifty-two. I love Pez. When well, I, was a I don't kid. think I really liked the candy as much as the dispenser. Now I that had, was the fun of it. I had it. a Batman Pez. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> and the board game. Scrabble became very popular in 1952. Wow! Okay. They started selling it at uh, Macy. Uh, William H Macy made it popular. Wow. As a matter of fact, wow. so right. great game, good stuff, great stuff. Who was the president in 1952? I can't even right now. I'm not good at that. I, you know, I I, I, I could think. look it up the same way you could. But Maybe I, Eisenhower or something like that. No, I don't know. I'm trying to I think. Don't know. 1952. Do you want me to start letting you know that? Yeah, I, was, I would like to know who the president was. In I those will years. add that to our fun facts. Right. I mean, for what I'm paying you, you should at least uh, put I, that on there too, I, right? We will have the president and fun <laughs> facts next week. It was Harry S. Truman. It was Truman. Mm-hmm. Okay, Truman. Now you know. All right. Okay. He beat Dewey. I know that. All right. All right. So uh, in this hour, Whitehall, Whitehall, one, two, one, two. I said it twice. It Whitehall, said Whitehall, Whitehall, one, two, one, two, one, two. Uh, our text in line, 312-981-7200. We love hearing from you folks. So give us a, a text so we can... Uh, 
keep in touch with you. All right, Whitehall one two one two was uh, a very it was a very interesting crime series. Came to NBC Radio in 1951 for two seasons. These were true crime cases from the files of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. And uh, they were dramatized with an all-British cast. So if you were British and living in America, you might get cast in this at that time. It was like, (laughs) he's like uh, Willis Cooper who created it. We got to get some British actors in this. Find some British actors. Call the casting agent. Uh, And cast British. That's what I did with the Twilight Zone. Whenever we'd have a Twilight Zone that was set in uh, Britain, I would call Claire Simon. It may as well be authentic. The, the casting queen of Chicago. Right. I'd call her up. I'd say, Claire, I cast everyone you have that's British. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's what they did here. Um, Willis Cooper created this series. He also created Lights Out and Quiet Please. And Whitehall 1212 was the then famous television, uh, sorry, telephone number of Scotland Yard. It was there, you know, they would dial Whitehall 1212, almost like 911 now, you yeah. know. Um, it was the headquarters uh, of the London Metro. The series was hosted by Chief Superintendent John Davidson. He was the curator of the Block Museum. Huh? Yeah. Maybe I could do a part in this Yeah, show. you would be great at Can pretending to have a I British say, accent. I would say, yes, Lisa. As an old man. Yeah, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. This is called The Case of Maggie Rowlinson from May 25th, 1952. Uninterrupted, here is Whitehall 1212. Whitehall 1212. For the first time in history, Scotland Yard opens its official files to bring you the true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These are the true stories, the plain, unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names of the participants have, for obvious reasons, been changed. The broadcasts are presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard. Research on Whitehall 1212 is furnished by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. The voice you will now hear is that of Chief Superintendent John Davidson, custodian of Scotland Yard's famous Black Museum. Good afternoon. Police officials from every part of the civilized world come to see us here at New Scotland Yard. Many of them are old friends of ours, of course. There are few enough police forces with whom Scotland Yard has not been in contact. The Surety of France, the American FBI, Canada's famous RCMP. We're all enlisted in the war against crime. And as the Bible says, state chapter of Ecclesiastes, third verse, there is no discharge in that war. We have an interesting visitor with us today. He came to glance at the exhibits here in case number 202131. I hear a doctor's instrument case and a pair of child's rompers. These with certain other objects which were later given Christian burial were important objects in that case. And our visitor is the man who had so much to do with solving the case. 
Captain Lionel Watt, the former chief constable of Lancaster. I must tell you at once that this was a matter for the Lancaster Constabulary and the police of Dumfrieshire in Scotland. Purely, let us say, a, a local matter. No, Scotland Yard was not engaged in this case at all. Captain Watt and his people solved this most baffling case themselves. Yes, so suppose I'm able to discover we have only one procedure that's precisely like Scotland Yard's, John. And that is? We patronize the same hangman. Two miles north of the town of Moffat, which is in Dumfrieshire in Scotland, the main road from Carlisle to Edinburgh crosses the ravine where a small stream, Garden Home Lynn, runs to the River Annan through a remarkably peaceful countryside. On the morning of the 29th of September, some years ago, several crudely wrapped bundles were observed lying on the banks of the ravine below the road. From one of the bundles protruded a naked human arm. The Dumfrieshire Constabulary naturally investigated. What they found added up to confusion as well as to horror. I was in the Moffat police station when their Sergeant Barnes made his first report. Four bundles. One wrapped in the Daily Herald, the London Labourite newspaper, for 5th August this year. The second wrapped in a pillow slip. The third in a portion of cotton sheeting. And the fourth in another piece of sheeting, tied up with what appears to be the hem torn from the sheet. All the bundles contained pieces of people to which straw was adhering and a large quantity of cotton wool also. Quite neat. As nearly as we can tell, there are parts of at least two bodies. It's impossible at present to identify them. It's impossible even to determine the sex of the bodies or their approximate ages. By the appearance of the bodies, the medical officer thinks that they have been dead about two weeks, but he doesn't know for certain. He's uh, sorting them out now. During the week, other parcels were discovered along the course of Garden Home Lynn and along the banks of the River Annan, all on the Scottish side of the border, outside my bailiwick. These parcels, which also contained portions of human bodies, were wrapped in pages of the Sunday graphic for the 15th of September and in pages of other newspapers, unidentifiable because of bloodstains. I had a telephone call. Sergeant Barnes speaking at Moffat, sir. Oh, hello, Sergeant. What's up? We don't think our friends are Scottish, sir. What's that? Don't think they're Scottish. What friends? What? what, what the is? dead people, sir. The ones we found. We don't think they're Scottish folk. Well, that's quite a statement, Sergeant. When you can't even tell whether they're male or female. Well, sir, we've been making inquiries ever since the first parcel was found. And according to our records, there hasn't been anybody missing in Dumfrieshire in 11 years who's not accounted for. Well, that doesn't prove that... The... There was a carnival at Morecambe about two weeks before we found the... Uh, well, now, what's that got to do with it? Well, I telephoned the Herald office in London, sir, and they printed a special edition of slip sheets with pictures of the Morecambe carnival. Oh, yes, yes, that's right. They printed uh, 5,370 copies, and it was all sold with a Sunday Herald of 15 September... Either in Morecambe, which is right alongside you, or in Lancaster, which is where you are, sir. Uh, do you mind telling me what all this has got to do with your latest discovery, Sergeant? Oh, not at all, sir. I thought you'd understand. The latest discoveries was wrapped up in those special pages, sir.
I at once put our people onto their missing persons lists to discover what missing persons had been reported about the 15th of September who had not yet been found. From Morecambe, sir. They've had nobody missing since September 11th, before season closed at Seaside. Uh, two persons, trippers from York, missing on that day, but bodies were recovered on following day. Both were drowned. That's all, sir. How about Lancaster? None unaccounted for within the specified period, sir. Unless you want to count this one, though she's not really missing. Who? Name Maggie Rowlandson, maid servant. She's not been officially reported missing. But her stepfather's been around mumbling about a complaint. What about? Well, sir, it's one of them there things. The girl went away with her mistress and they haven't come back, that's all. Where'd they go? Edinburgh, her husband says, sir. Oh, she's married. Mistress' husband. Well, tell him to make the wife send the girl back. I did, sir. And he wrote, but he hasn't had any reply yet. I gather the wife got fed up with him and walked out, taking the maid along for company. Huh. They'll be back. That all? That's all, sir. Well, keep on checking up on missing persons, though what can be done, I'm sure I don't know. No, sir. I think that sergeant over there at Moffat's is daft. Anyone could have got hold of a copy of that special edition of the Herald? Yes, sir. It's his affair. Let him work it out his way. We've plenty to do. Yes, sir. Well, thanks very much anyway. Keep your eyes open. Yes, sir. Oh, I say, uh, I suppose it is our job to check up on things. Uh, yes, sir, that's right. Whether it makes much sense or not. Uh, what's this chap's name whose wife's gone? Well, I'll have a chat with him and see what can be done about getting this girl back to her parents. <laughs> Fat chance, I expect. Name's, uh, Dr. John Hakim, sir. Two Dalton Square. Funny name. Mm, Hindu or Parsi or something, I think, sir. Uh, well, I'll go see the blighter on my way home. It's quite all right. Go ahead. What, sir? What here? What here? Sir, this is Sergeant Barnes at Moffat over in Dumfrieshire. Hello, Barnes. We're almost certain now, sir, about the bodies. Certain? Well, well what did you find out? Well, sir, there's two professors of forensic medicine staying here at the hotel in Moffat. From Glasgow University, sir. Yeah. And they were invited to look at the remains. They and the medical officer here think they can be put them back together. Good. Then you'll be able to identify them. Well, they're not so sure about that, sir. Seeing the condition of them. But what I called you about was to tell you you can narrow down whatever search you're making there. I was going to tell you I haven't found any persons missing here, so your theory not is... Not missing persons, sir. What did you say? That's missing women. Women? Aye. The doctors are certain, sir. They were both women. <laughs> I felt rather a fool about doing it. But my conscience, if that's who it was, kept mumbling in my ear about leaving no stone unturned, so... I stopped my car as near to the door of two Dalton places I could and went to call on Dr. John Hakim. The bell was apparently out of order. It was a good five minutes before my pounding on the door was answered. The doctor ain't home, sir. Oh, uh, isn't he? He's committing an operation on an impacted wisdom tooth, sir. Oh? Then he's a dentist. Licentiated Dentistry University of Bombay, sir. I thought he was a doctor. Bachelor of Medicine University of Lucknow, sir. He's an Indian. A Parsi, sir, whatever that is. 
But he won't be back till quite late, so I'm not to take any appointments for him for the day. Are you the, uh... I'm the charwoman. Well, I'm very anxious to see the doctor. I'm Captain Watt. Mrs. Music. Mrs. Pamela Music. Huh? Who? That's my name, sir. Oh, oh. Well, I was quite anxious to see the doctor. Well, I'm in the doctor's confidence, sir. If there was anything... I am Chief Constable of Lancaster, Mrs. Music. Cool. What's he done, sir? Nothing, so far as I know. Well, then, what do you want to see him about? Well, I'm afraid that's my business and his, my dear madam. Madam, be I? You want to ask him about his wife, don't you, sir? I wonder if you could tell me anything about him. I'm afraid that's his business and mine, my dear sir. <laughs> uh, will you tell the doctor, please, that I'd be glad if he'd get in touch with me at the town hall, my office? Has Mrs. Iron Mighty Dr. Akeem been making trouble? Why should she make trouble? Well, she's made plenty before. Though it's not my affair, I'm sure. What's she want now, sir? I'm afraid I shall have to discuss that with the doctor. If you'll be good enough to tell him that I call, please. Yes, sir. Uh, would you know where Mrs. Harkin is at present? I do not. Does the doctor know? Well, of course he knows. And do you know if Maggie Rowlandson is with her, the maid? Well, I know she should be right here, doing her share of this work, the lazy... Well... How long has she been gone? <clears throat> oh, since that Sunday the carnival at Morecambe closed. The 15th of September. I think it was. They'd been to Morecambe that Saturday night for the last day of it. Mrs. Harkin and, and the And the maid. doctor told me when I come to work on Monday that Mrs. had walked out on Sunday morning, taking Maggie with her. This is the longest time she's been away. Oh, this has happened before, eh? <laughs> Where does, where does she usually go? Uh, she's got a sister in Edinburgh. She visits. What's her name? Mrs. Alexander MacArthur. Darling Edie. She's a twitter, Mrs. Hakeem, and I don't like her. Poor dear doctor. I hope she don't never come back this time. You'll be better off. Why? Nag and nag and nag. And her uh, that used to be a barmaid right here in town before he met her. And him meeting his heart out for her. Oh, well, you'll excuse me, sir, but I've got to get back to work. I'll tell the doctor you called, but don't you tell him what I've said now, mind you, sir. Here, now, give us a hand with this carpet before you go, huh? Express message dispatched to the Edinburgh Police by Chief Constable Lionel Watt of Lancaster. Most urgently request you make contact with Mrs. Alexander MacArthur, Edinburgh, requesting having her sister, Mrs. Jan Hakim, of this city, get in touch with me at once. Also discover whether Mrs. Hakim's maidservant, Maggie Rowlandson, is there with her. Information most urgently desired. Watt, Chief Constable Lancaster. Sergeant Barnes of Moffat telephoned me. Sergeant Barnes here, sir. Oh, good morning, Sergeant. Good morning, sir. Did you have any luck? We found two women who seemed to be missing. Yes, Sergeant, but further inquiry has discovered them for us. They're visiting in Edinburgh, that's all. You had any luck? Those two professors I told you about, sir, they seem quite delighted with what they've accomplished. Putting the bodies back together. Bodies? You should have seen them, sir. I did, thanks. Any clues? They said one of the bodies was a young woman. The others older, about 35, Dr. Fairley said. One of them had red hair, the young one, he said. 
Red hair? Yes, sir. And there's a part of the upper left forearm of the younger one that can't be found. What's that mean, Barnes? Well, Dr. Fairley thinks there was some kind of identifying mark. Oh. Uh, a scar uh-huh. or something. And the murderer, whoever he was, was smart enough to remove it. Real neat. Professional job, too, sir. Just as neat as if a doctor or a surgeon had done it. Dr. Fairley says. Come in. Dr. Hawkins, sir. What? Dr. Hawkins here. Oh. I have him come in, please. What do you say, sir? sir? I've got a visitor, Barnes. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Goodbye, sir. Well, sir. You are Chief Constable Watt, isn't it? I am, sir. I want to know I want to know what you mean, sir, by persecuting me. Answer me. Why, my dear sir, nobody's persecuting me. You have appeared at my office in my absence, making inquiries which I am resenting very much indeed. And I demand that they be stopped. My dear man. I am a reputable doctor, sir, a surgeon. I will not have policemen coming to my office. I came to your home, sir. It is also my office and surgery. You are thinking that I have some guilty knowledge of my wife's whereabouts, and that little Rundy, her maid, isn't it? There's no call to be quite so belligerent, Dr. I shall be as belligerent as I please, sir, when my rights are invaded. Uh, Now, uh, look here, Dr. Hakim. I am not going to be put on the defensive by you at all. You may as well understand that. Now, I'm sure that you're aware that I'm following up a legitimate inquiry concerning the whereabouts of your maid, Magic. You have no right to question my servants. My dear sir. I have a right to question anyone who might be able to contribute information. You know that that Mrs. Musical talk. I am <laughs> not acquainted with Mrs. Music's proclivity, sir. Now that you are here in my office, I ask you what information you can give me about the Rowlandson woman. I can give you none. She accompanied my wife to Glasgow. Probably she is still there with her. I thought you said that your wife went to Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh, I mean. I can't keep these stupid Scottish... The, the English says these Scottish... I can't remember them. I see. Has your wife left you, Doctor? I will not tell you. You have a reason for refusing to answer, I take it. I have. You will be telling it all over the city and my practice will be ruined. I know how you police operate. I don't trust you. That's a very extraordinary attitude to take, It is the attitude which I choose to take. You will stop meddling with my affairs, sir. Look here, uh, Dr. Hakim. I... I, Dr. Hakim. I... I have no interest for the moment in the reasons for your wife's having left you. But... I'll tell you why she left me. She left me for another man. I said I have no interest in her reason, sir, at the moment. I'm being disgraced. I am being ruined by this scandal. My practice, I should be ruined. Now you please come around so that all the neighbors may see. It is inexcusable. Control yourself, sir. I'm interested in finding Maggie Rowlandson for her parents. She is with my wife in Glasgow, Edinburgh. Is she? Of course I told you so. Now, will you do something to end this persecution? I've told you there is no persecution, Doctor. Will you put a notice in the papers that I had nothing to do with my wife's leaving me? Will you swear? You're being silly, Doctor. No, no, you are ruining my practice. I don't believe so, I demand that you give out a statement to the public that I know nothing at all about this. Except that you know where your wife and Miss Rowlandson are. Will you give me a statement, sir? Dr. Harkin... 
Dr. Hakim, when I'm thoroughly convinced that you have no connection with either your wife's going away nor of Miss Rowlandson's unexplained departure... I had nothing to do with either of them. My wife left me and took Matthew with her. When, when I'm thoroughly convinced of that, Doctor, I'll be glad to say so to any of your patients, present or prospective, that you care to send me. How dare Until you? Until then, if I need you, I shall send for you. Good day, sir. You are persecuting me because I'm an Indian, isn't it? You are being offensive, sir. I, you, you think you are a great big superior Englishman and so on. Yes, Therefore, sir. you can say... What do you want? Sergeant, show Dr. Hakim the exit, please. Yes, sir. Will you come this way? I will not come this way. I want justice. I will stay here until... All right, all right, all right. I'm coming. You're bigger than I am. You're English. You're you fully... this way, sir. Ratty little brute. Oh, hello. Put me through to Sergeant Barnes over in Moffat in Dumfriesshire, if you please. Quite. Dumfriesshire is in Scotland. Right. Oh, he's gone, sir. Oh, excuse me, sir. I, I had this express message for you when you rang for me. Yeah, from Edinburgh. Oh, thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, I will. Edinburgh. Barnes here. Oh, oh, Sergeant Barnes, what here? I was just calling to tell you that... First, though, have you heard anything more in the way of clues? You were starting to tell me... Just that we found that one of the pieces of the body, sir, was wrapped up in a pair of child's rompers, sir. Rompers? Yes, sir. The other parts were wrapped up in old papers, old rags, a bit of sheeting. But this, it appears to be a part of a left leg, was wrapped up in these kids' rompers. That's all. So if that'll help... Uh, what did you find out, sir? Well, I had this chap in here and a remarkably unpleasant little man. He confirms that both of our so-called missing women are safe in Edinburgh. <laughs> so I'm afraid that your Lancaster theory rather collapses. Oh, that's too bad, sir. I had great hopes of you taking this off our hands. No, I think not. As a matter of fact, I've just had an express message from the Edinburgh police. I'll read it to you. Half a sec. Uh... Chief Constable, etc., etc., that's me. Uh, uh, oh. What do they say, sir? Well, I'm afraid I gave it back rather too quickly, Sergeant. You what, sir? Here's the message from Edinburgh. Subject person has been contacted. Says has not seen subject of inquiry, Mrs. Hakim, since last New Year's Day in Lancaster. <laughs> has never seen subject Maggie Rowlandson. Hodson... Edinburgh, please. What did you say, Sergeant? I said, I wish you luck, sir. <laughs> it was raining quite hard when I arrived, full of beans at the door of number two Dalton Square, to demand explanations from the little doctor. I thumped the door vigorously and... After a suitable period of time, it opened. The doctor, I did. Oh, it's you, Constable. Where is he, Mrs. Musy? Out, sir. Call it on patience. He certainly did give me what for. May I come in out of the rain, please? Oh, if you must, Thank sir. You. Wipe your boots on the mat. It's mucky enough in here anyways, though Lord knows I try to keep it tidy. What do you want now? She ain't here. Neither one of them's here. Neither Mrs. Hakim nor Maggie, what's her name, Rowlandson? Nor the doctor. Now, what did you want, sir? He ain't here. It's very important that I see him. Where do you expect I might find him? 
Or uh, when will he be back? That's the way I got into trouble the other day, answering questions. Now, look here, Mrs. Music. He says it ain't good for business. He said if I'd done it again, I'd lose my situation, and I'm not going to lose my situation. If you'll just tell me when the doctor will be back, Mrs. Music. He'll be back tonight. He's going to have tea with the children. What children? Oh, no, love me how it's raining. Well, that'll be good for the carpets. Carpets? Oh, now, you do ask questions, don't you? What children? The doctors. They're staying with Dr. Mattoon and his wife since the missus went away. That's why the carpets are soaking in the rain. Mrs. Music, will you please... To wash the blood out of them. What blood? It's been on them ever since the day she went away. And I don't know any way to get it out, so I'm soaking them in the rain. And... Whose blood? Whose blood is it, uh, I mean? There was blood all over the surgery and on the stair carpet. You helped me with the stair carpet yesterday, for which I thank you, sir. Whose blood? Huh? <laughs> oh, blood ain't no treat around here, sir. The doctor's always cutting people up, committing operations and all. Whose blood, I say? Oh, you needn't yell at me. I can hear all right. Why, his, of course. His? The doctor's? Of course. How did his blood get on? When I come to work that Monday morning, he told me the missus had run away from him, so he took the kids to stay with Mrs. Matt, too, like I said before. And when he come back, he tried to open a tin of peaches for his breakfast, and he cut his hand dreadful on the tin opener. Didn't you see he was still bandaged up? Yeah, yeah. There was blood every place in the house. On the rug, on his waistcoat. Ah, uh, he bled a lot. Well, you wouldn't think one person could bleed so much and still walk about. Uh, who dressed his hand? He dressed it himself. Wouldn't he, he wouldn't even let me put Zambuk on it. He's very accomplished, sir. Oh, dear me. What's the matter? Oh, I knowed he'd forget to take them. You see? What are those things? Oh, I told him he'd forget them. Now what are those poor kiddies going to do with them? What are they? Rompers. Don't you recognize rompers? Haven't you got any kiddies? I told him to take them. Whose are they? All except that one pair that belonged to young Alan. I don't know how anybody could lose a pair of rompers. Is there a telephone here, Mrs. Mas Music? In the surgery there, but I'm not sure the doctor... There's would... half a crown. Say nothing about it. Bar music, that red bow tie he's been wanting. In here, Mrs. Music. It's his birthday Wednesday. What'd you say? Oh, yes, it's in there, sir. Thank you. Uh, one more question, Mrs. Music. What color hair did Maggie Rowlandson have? Had, sir? Well, she's got ginger hair. Real bright red. Thank you, Mrs. Music. This is Chief Constable Watt. Put me through to Sergeant Barnes at the Moffat Police Station. Quickly, do you hear? It was eight o'clock in the evening when Sergeant Barnes arrived at 2 Dalton Place. I'd urged Mrs. Music to wait. Come in, Barnes, I said. Did you bring them? Yes, sir. They're right here. What on earth? Know what these are, Mrs. Music? Well, of course I do. Where'd you get them all bloody like this? Ugh. Is there blood on everything? What are they? Why, they're little Alan's rompers that was lost. How do you know? Well, well right there. The, the patch I sewed on myself out of Music's Anderson Gingham shirt. Of course I know. Where'd you get them? Oh, why, Miss Maggie Rowlandson had them. Oh, well, there's the doctor. At last. You gentlemen, you can... Mrs. Music, are you here? Yes, sir, I'm here. I'm here also, Dr. Hakim. Now, what are you wanting in my house? You... I want to see you, sir. And may I know who you are, please? I'm Sergeant Barnes of the Dumfrieshire Constabulary, sir. 
I want to see you, too. Now, look here. What is this? I what? found little Alan's rompers oh. that was lost, Doctor. Oh. Aren't you glad? No, I don't think he's very glad, Mrs. Music. Doctor, may I look at that bandaged hand where you cut it on the tin opener and where you bled so profusely? Stand away from me. Stand away from me, I tell you. Hold his hand, Barnes. Yes, sir. No, don't, don't touch my hand. Let go. I'll be Let quite go gentle, Doctor, but I've got to get that bandage off. There's no blood here. Now, there. Look, Barnes. Yes, sir. Well, let me see. Why, why the right me cut on that hand? Where did all the blood come from, then? Yes, Doctor. Where did all the blood come from? Johangel Sorabik Hakim, alias Dr. John Hakim. I arrest you for the murder of your common-law wife and of Maggie Rowlandson. And I warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. He admitted it, finally. He had murdered his wife in a fit of insane rage when he discovered that she had met, quite innocently, incidentally, the man of whom he was insanely jealous, though without any cause whatever. The maid, Maggie Rowlandson, was killed in an attempt to defend her mistress. In one day, the murders had been committed on Saturday night. He had dissected the bodies, removed all means of identification and at night had scattered the neatly wrapped parcels containing the bodies from the bridge on the Edinburgh Road. The two professors from the university were able to reassemble the mangled bits to such an extent that there was no question of their identity at last. Dr. Hakim, which was not his name, was tried for murder at Manchester Assizes and found guilty. He was hanged at Strangeways Prison three weeks later. Same hangman who works for Scotland Yard officiated. The author of their appearance on Whitehall 1212 today were Harvey Hayes, Horace Braham, Pat O'Malley, Lester Fletcher, Patricia Courtley, and Morris Delamore. Lionel Rico speaking. Whitehall 1212 is written and directed by Willis Cooper. This is NBC the National Broadcasting Company. That's Whitehall, 1212 from May 25th, 1952, with the case of Maggie Rollinson. And uh, yeah, Willis Cooper produced that, directed it, and created it, as heard on NBC. You know, I had a couple people text in and ask me what a romper is. Yeah, it's a like romper, a romper, a little kid's like, like a, a one piece. Sleepy, right? You sleep in it, like right? Well, you little could sleeps in but it. You could go out in a romper, just like a one piece. Like remember shorts romper and a room, romper room. I remember see, I, I see Lisa. Lisa. I see Carl. I see Shante. I see a magic mirror. <laughs> of course, it's romper room. Don't forget five free classic radio shows. We have Suspense, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Fibber McGee, and Molly. 
complete shows, 30-minute episodes at 100radioshows.com. They're yours free as a thank you for listening to the show. And if there's anything there you want to purchase, because there's hundreds of other shows available for purchase, use the promo code RADIO at checkout. Save 70%. That's also a thank you for listening to this radio show. In our next hour, it's the lives of Harry Lime, Orson Welles, Lisa. Remember? You know, I sometimes I say, oh, Wells. Oh, Wells. <laughs> oh, Wells. He stars in a 1951 broadcast, The uh, the Lives of Harry Lyme. That is coming your way in just a few minutes right here. All right. Uh, this is our... Three. Hour three? <laughs> <laughs> hour three. It is? It is. We've got The Lives of Harry Lyme from Hour Three. This is uh, from September 14th, 1951. Love Affair with Orson Welles. And we will be playing our new exciting segment called Just the Facts. You know, you're right. It is Hour Three. How do you like that? (laughs) Once in a while, I get it right. I'm all confused. So what's new with that? I don't know, but I am. <laughs> hey, you know what, Lisa? Did you get your uh, Did you get your links? For, yes, uh, I did. What'd you think? I, you know what? I'm usually a little bit behind. Yeah, you're behind. Right. <laughs> I'm a little bit behind. You're a little. I haven't little actually bit. gotten to the new month's links, but I have them. You haven't listened. I have to a the... special folder. Yeah. Where I am building my own classic radio collection every Very month. Very good. And you know the best thing. I was thinking about this the other day. The Classic Radio Club, and we have hundreds and hundreds of members. The Classic Radio Club, it's so great to experience it. If you are not a Classic Radio Club member, folks, you can go to our website, ClassicRadioClub.com, and you can join for a dollar. Just one dollar, and you join, and you can experience being a club member. Now, you'll get ten Classic Radio shows emailed to you, including Abbott Costello with the Who's On First and Suspense and Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Inner Sanctum, great shows. And then every month you will get whatever 10 shows we're sending. I choose, I pick 10 shows from my library of 100,000 shows and send those to you each and every month. Now, the first month, a dollar. If you get the digital downloads, it's only nine ninety nine, so a dollar a show. And if you get the CDs, it's a little more, fourteen ninety nine. But that's five CDs in a collector case, and uh, you get them sent to you, sent to your door. And, and that's it, ten classic radio shows yeah, on the CDs. five CDs plus plus liner notes. I write about every show, not only the show you're getting, but the series itself. And of course, so, I get the liner notes on my digital option as well. So I get an email. It has all of the links on the email and the liner notes to go along with it. So either way, you can't lose. Right. You get the same 10 shows, whether you join the digital program or the CD set. But, you know, some people like CDs. Some people like the digital. Tomato, tomato, Carl, you know. But it's a great. I mean, if you like classic radio, these shows, when I tell you they are pristine quality, the best quality shows we have. Plus, I always pick interesting programs and certain reasons why. There's, I talk about it in the liner notes. But you will get the best of the best each and every month being a Classic Radio Club member. So check it out. Go to ClassicRadioClub.com. Yeah? All right. All right. Good job. Uh, when we come back, we're going to play our game, Just the Facts, and then it's the lives of Harry Lime. Stick around. That gets your attention, doesn't it, that she music? does. Glad I Ladies thought of it. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. 
The names have been changed to protect the... Too bad he doesn't say the stories. <laughs> the stories, right. because it's more than so, one story. Yes, it is. Just to let everybody know and remind everybody, we are no longer doing Guess That Song. A lot of texts. We appreciated we all retired of, it. We all of the support, but it's time to put it behind us. We're moving on. It's Just the Facts. Just the Facts is chock full of facts and history and trivia from the year of the radio show that we'll be playing that hour. This hour, we're going to be playing a show from 1951, The Lives of Harry Lyme. So we're going to be talking a little bit about what happened back in 1951. Of course, just the facts. So in 1951, and I know you know about this, Carl, MGM owed the dog who played Lassie $40,000 in back pay. <laughs> Didn't we talk about that once? So not planning- Boy, MGM really went to the dogs, huh? <laughs> went to the dogs. So not planning any more Lassie movies, MGM instead gave the rights to the Lassie trademark to the dog's trainer. Yeah. Who uh, spun it uh, off Rod into- Weatherwax. Who, well, I- Okay, something like that. Yeah. Who spun it off into a TV show that ran for 19 wow. seasons. They, Let's... they were probably happy. He was probably happy that <laughs> I, that they got I, the rights back. I would think so. Let's hear a little bit about the of the opening of Lassie. Lassie! Remember the show? Did you watch Lassie? Yeah, and it airs on Antenna TV all the time. It does, yes. Starring June Lockhart. So this Hugh ran. Riley, uh, this TV show ran for 19 Don seasons, Bobo, from 1954 Timmy, to how 70 many seasons? 19. Last. Get the heck out yeah, of here! Yeah, no. Okay, I'm out. 19 <laughs> seasons. Yeah, 54 to well, 73. So, so that the dog would be would have been 140 years old. Because <laughs> well, it it's seven years for every year. It's 140. Well, almost. they may have not just used one dog. That's just how it works <laughs> in in the TV. Not in the show. It was uh, always the same dog. Always the same dog. So also in 19. 19- 1951, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah, the Yankee Clipper. He had a 56-game hitting streak and did did. not strike out during the 1951 season. No, that's impossible. No, that's... He he had to have st- struck out well, at least once in 1951. That's incorrect, Carl. I I these don't. Are, these are the facts, Carl. Just the facts. I'm giving them to you. If if that's true, that that's probably a record that no one will ever break. He maybe didn't strike out me? in the 51 hits. In the 51 season. Yeah, the 1951 season. That's what I said. He had like 300 at bats. He didn't strike out. My facts tell me that right, Joe DiMaggio gonna, did not that fact. strike out during the 1951 if season. If that is true, that is a mind-boggling All right, you'll have statistic. To, you'll I'll have tell you to that right that now. Out. Okay. Also, that year... Our experts listening will let okay, us know. Okay, that would be great. The Broadway show The King and I premiered in March of 51 at Broadway St. James Theater. Ran for nearly three years. Yul make, Brenna. Yeah. The King and I. That's right. Making Wow, you know something about shows, making it the fourth longest-running Broadway musical in history at that time. Yeah. Let's hear a little clip from that. Shall we dance? One, two, three, and... On a bright cloud of music, shall we fly? One, two, three, and... Shall we dance? Oh, one, two, three, the, and... Have you seen The King and I? One, two, three, yeah, and... It's, it's iconic. <laughs> one, two, three, no. No, that gives you a little insight into 1951. Yule yes? Indeed. All right, well, good job, Lisa. Oh, yeah, thanks, Carl. Wow, we have a text in line, 312-981-7200. We love hearing from you. And uh, any of this stuff uh, sparks a memory or two? Let us yeah. know about that, too. Yeah. We love reading about your lives. 
So text us. And this segment is brought to you by Cat's Pride. But right now it's time for the Lives of Harry Lime, a good drama that starred Orson Welles as Harry Lime. Came to radio in 1951. It was produced in London. At this time, Lisa, Orson Welles, I think, was uh, avoiding some tax problems here in the United States, and he moved to London to get away from all that pro- those problems. And he um, did it work? <laughs> I don't know. And he starred in two radio shows. You know, he had to make some money out there. You know, he liked to eat. <laughs> Don't and we all? So he uh, he he starred in two radio series while he was in London, and the, and one of them was the Black Museum. Right. The other was the Lives of Harry Lyme, both by the same producer, Harry Allen Towers. Um, this was all about you know this character was all about the Third Man, the great from the Graham Greene novel, The Third Man. There was a movie, and Lyme was shot and killed in the sewer beneath Vienna in the original film. So the radio series was a prequel. Right. Many adventures of con artist Lyme uh, were told in this series in sort of a lighter tone. And the third man theme was played on a zither by Anton Karras for the uh, for this radio show, as it was in the movie as well. And we have an episode for you now called Love Affair from September 14, 1951. Uh, Orson Welles stars now uninterrupted. Here is the lives of Harry Lime. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The Lives of Harry Lyme, the fabulous stories of the immortal character originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with zither music by Anton Karas. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna, as those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? It's very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Friends, the story of my marriage. My first marriage. And believe you me, my last... It all began in the funny little city of Becorata. There isn't much to do there except get married. Principal local occupation, of course, is getting rich. And that's what brought me to Becorata. It's hidden away, as you probably know, in a remote corner of Saudi Arabia. Mines of black gold, oil derricks dot the landscape as far as you can see. And huddled beneath these modern steel skeletons lies a city as old as the East. Curio dealers hawk their wares in the narrow winding streets, beggars doze in shadowed doorways, robed Arabs mingle with Europeans in soil whites, and the city drowses with all the indolence of Asia. An ideal place for a murder and a double-cross in oil, oil, to grease the skids of fortune for Harry Lyme. And now Orson Welles as Harry Lyme, the third man in Love Affair. Saudi Arabia. Harry Lyme, that's me. 
a happy young bachelor strolling along the narrow street that led from the Grand Hotel to the Native Bazaar. Oh, noble one, a moment of your uh, time. I'm sorry, friend. I'm... I am not a beggar, oh, heaven-born. I am teller of fortune. Yes, but I... The past, the present, the future. I see all, yes, I tell yeah, all. Very interesting, Oh, sure. greatest of great lords, may your back never bend. Oh, thank you. May your beard never grow white. Well, I'll try not to. Thank a you. A little but... back sheesh, and I read uh, your fortune. Thanks very much, old man. I'm busy making my fortune. I don't need to have it told. Show me your palm, noble one. Let me but see the line of your destiny. Okay, okay, friend, but make it snappy. Ah, the hand of the wanderer, the seeker. It is difficult to tell your fortune, my lord, because you have no fortune. You have many fortune. Well, that's nice to hear, old man, but let's get down to cases. When am I going to get rich? You will always be near to wealth and see many women. Oh, that's good. Beautiful women. That's better. Dark women. I like blondes, too. But only one wife. Also redheads. What's that about a wife? Noble one, you will only be married once. Well, and once is too much. Put it mildly, I'm afraid you've got your fortunes mixed up. You will travel, great one, quickly and across many land, and you travel with a wife. Okay, now you've had your fun. I'll say goodbye. Wait! Wait, you have not paid me. Why should I, friend? I'm Harry Lyme. But you don't know about me. I'd fill a book, and nobody's going to write it without paying me royalties. So long, old man. <laughs> Still the same sweet, generous Harry Lyme. Schweig, what are you doing, Beccarata? Just exactly what you think I'm doing, checking up on you. The same sweet, lovable Carl Schweig. Where can we talk, eh? Almost anywhere. It's the time for Salat. No one will bother us. Come on, go into this cafe here. It doesn't look very clean. Uh, it'll answer your needs, don't you think? You follow me? Well, it doesn't seem to be anyone around. What do you want, Schweig? What do I want? I want to know whether you've obtained the oil leases. That is what you're being paid for, isn't it, Mr. Lyon? Not too well paid. I'm Quit sorry toying with me, Harry. I'm not toying with you. What do you expect? Everything in this city moves by inches. I've made friends here. I'm real chummy with Aleph, and I think I've got him in a receptive mood. Actually, I'm sure he doesn't realize how important oil is going to be here in a few years. If I can't force him to sign the minute, things don't work that way. I know, I know. We have perfect confidence in you. And why did you come here? To make sure that our confidence wasn't misplaced. Oh, I see. Yeah. And do you think you might be able to settle the matter of the oil lease? I have an appointment huh? with the and late this afternoon, he's out at the summer palace now. It's about 40 miles from the city. When I get back, I'll get in touch with you. You'll be at the Grand Hotel, I guess. I'll be gone by this afternoon, Harry, but I do have others working for me. I'll know it if you try to double-cross me. Your government will get the leases, Schweig. Now, about the money. I brought you a draft to pay for your services to date. Here. Mm. And thank you. Oh, hey, what's this? Yeah, this hardly covers my hotel bill. My fair getting here. You're trying to... Your final payment will be waiting for you at the Bank International oh. when you have concluded negotiations. But how will anyone at the bank know when I... They'll know, Harry. They'll know. I was still burning about the size of the checks. I left Schweig and headed for the Bank International. I hadn't been surprised to learn that Schweig's government had other agents in Bicarada, but I wondered how it was possible for someone employed by the bank to know when the elephant had acceded to my requests. As I entered the shabby monument of finance, I searched the bland, inscrutable faces behind the cages, but they told me nothing. Well, I'd come to cash the check, not place your rods. I slid the infuriating little piece of engraved paper through the opening of the window of the chief teller, a lovely-looking lad, if you care for the pockmarked, beady-eyed, murderous type. He glanced down at the check and then up at me. 
You are Harry Lyon? Yes, I have my credentials. Here. That won't be necessary. You are already well known in this city. Oh, that's very flattering. How did you want this, Mr. Lyon? I don't care about the denominations, but I wanted an American money. American money? Yeah, you see, I'm an American. I'm sentimental about American money. Very well, Mr. Lyon. Mm. Here you are, sir. One, two, three, four, five hundred dollars. Thank you. However, with the current rate of exchange, I might advise you to... Pardon me, Mr. Lyon. Huh? I apologize for approaching you on the street, but I must speak to you at once. Who are you? My name would not mean anything to you, but I can tell you this. I am no friend of Karl Schweig. Oh, that's good. Any enemy of Karl Schweig is a friend of mine. What can I do for you? It is a matter of what I can do for you. To begin with, may I drive you back to your hotel? I uh, have my own car. Thank you do not own a car, Mr. Lyme, and the Citroën you have rented, you did not use today. You left it in the hotel garage to be serviced. You wanted in good running order for your trip to the Alafin Summer Palace later in the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd be delighted to accept a lift back to the hotel. That's your car there? Yes. Gregory? Uh, the car is my own, incidentally. There are some governments that are not as cautious of their purse strings as the employers of your Mr. Schweig. Mm, Gregory, we will drive Mr. Lime to the Grand Hotel. Do not hurry. Well, man, you know all about my car, my engagement this afternoon, apparently my business here in Becerrada. What more would you like to know? You do me any justice, Mr. Lime. I do not seek anything. I wish to give you something here. What do you want kidnapped for this kind of money? Mr. Lyme, we are both here in Decorata for the same thing. But there are two major differences. You want the oil leases for the country who gave you that check you just cashed at the bank. I want the leases for another power. Mm-hmm, yes. To date, you have been successful. And I have not been. I have no signed agreements, You man. will have. Authoritative sources tell me that it has become a personal thing between you and the Alafin. You have exercised great charm on him. He will sign the leases made out by you to whatever power you select. Mm, maybe. I want you to make out the contracts for my country. Yeah, but Schweig's already given me several payments. Payments? <laughs> How do they compare with the money you now hold in your hand? Well, they don't compare, but I can't accept this money. I've already assured Schweig. Look, that... Harry Lime, I know you. I know how your mind works. I have worked with men like you for years. Your loyalties belong to the highest bidder. In your hand, you hold the largest price yet offered for your services. When you present the contracts to the Alafin tomorrow, I am sure they will contain the name of the right country. A minute later, I was walking toward the bar of the hotel. I wasn't clutching the money the Baron had offered me in my tight little fist anymore. Uh-huh. No, I was making a comforting bulge in my wallet. The long mahogany gate of forgetfulness was deserted except for George Harris... George was a sort of glorified tourist guide who sometimes brought parties of American travelers to see the quaint charm of ancient Becurata. Quaint yet. I'm not crowding, am I, Lime? <laughs> We're here first, so you couldn't be crowding me. All right, then you're crowding me, and it's a long bar. If there's anything silly looking, it's a long bar with one drinker at one end, one at the other. Come on, Harris, break down, have a drink with me. Lime, it may interest you to know that when I bring tourists here, I give them a little indoctrination lecture. Oh, I suppose. And part of it consists of a warning to keep away from a very unsavory American expatriate by the name of Harry Lime. Mm-hmm. You think I'm capable of contaminating you and your camera-toting babbits? I don't quite know what you're capable of, but the tourists who can afford to include a side trip to the Orient in their itinerary obviously have money. There's no sense in waving a branch of honeysuckle in front of a bee. Well, I guess that's my cue to buzz off, Mr. Harris. Don't worry about my trying to get even with you for all the nasty things you said. I'd much rather have my revenge when you're not prepared for it. 
hungry, but I walked into the dining saloon. George Harris followed me, headed for a table festooned with his party of tourists. Usually his party consisted of bicarbonate of soda addicts, fugitives from board of directors' meetings, and generously proportioned dowagers, enjoying the money their late husbands had worked themselves to death, accumulating. But this time, there was a new note. A lovely, fresh-looking girl. She had the sort of innocence that only a Reynolds could have captured, or a Harry Lyme. When she got up from the table, I followed her to the piazza. There wasn't a hovering mother, a chaperone, or a tourist guide in sight. Uh, I, I say, uh, you didn't drop your handkerchief. What? Uh, if you had, I could have picked it up and returned it to you. We could have started talking. Uh, I would have offered to show you the city. I oh. have a guide, thank you. Yes, I know, but I could show you places George Harris wouldn't dream of taking a 17-year-old girl to. I'm 19. Oh, oh I've been wondering... Now, I've been wondering about a few other things, too, as a matter of fact. You must be the Harry Lyme Mr. Harris was telling us oh, about. Oh, surely I'm not the only man in Becorado capable of speculating a bit about a beautiful American girl. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Lyme, but the others will be coming out from lunch soon, and I mustn't be seen talking to you here in broad daylight. But it, it, it won't be broad daylight forever. Well, then, perhaps we'll meet this evening, Miss... Uh... Perhaps. <laughs> But with all the looks, she was pushed to the back of my mind as I got to the summer palace of the elephant later that afternoon. I rented Citroen. I was behaving nicely, and I guess I wasn't watching the road too carefully because suddenly the ordinarily deserted strip of pavement became crowded, and I had to pull to a stop. Arabs riding burrows crowded about the car. There were some half-castes on foot climbing on the running boards. In front of the car were three or four Bedouins, pretty fierce-looking customers with old-fashioned muskets slung over their shoulders. Hey! Hey, what's all this about? I'm on my way to see your ruler. If I'm detained, you'll be very angry. I say, isn't there somebody here who speaks English? I speak English, Mr. Well, you, Lyme. you're the chief teller from the Bank International. That's one of my occupations. Move over, Mr. Lyme. We have many things to talk about before you have your meeting with the Alafine. And now, Orson Welles, as the third man, continues with Love Affair. The beady-eyed, pockmarked Arab was sitting next to me in the front seat of my rented Citroen. The near-equatorial afternoon was growing cold. The leather of the car's upholstery damp and clammy under my hand. But as the motley crew outside the car crowded close, I made an instinctive gesture toward the bulgy wallet that rested in my inside pocket. If you're thinking of reaching for a gun, Mr. Lyme, I might inform you that these few friends represent only a portion of Mr. Schweig's representatives in Bacurata. So you're Schweig's man in the bank? Precisely. Well, you can relax. I wasn't reaching for a gun. I have no need to relax, Mr. Lyme. But you appear a trifle nervous. Oh, no, not at all. No. But perhaps your gesture towards your pocket was only to assure yourself that your wallet was still safe. What are you getting at? I saw you get into Mordecai Varian's car outside the bank today. It would not be healthy to go against Mr. Schweig's wishes. No, I have uh, <laughs> no intention of doing that. Oh. I thought the idea might have occurred. Oh, no, not for a minute. If Monsieur Varian's offer was more interesting... Don't try it, Mr. Lyme. 
keep your promise to Schweig, and then get out of town before Valley knows you've completed our arrangements with the Alafine. I'm not leaving town till I get the balance of the money Schweig owes me. He said he'd be waiting for me at the bank. And so it will be. And the bank will be closed by the time I leave the Alephant's palace. Well, you conclude the negotiations and then meet me at the bar of the hotel. Okay. I will have the money waiting for you there. All right, old man. It's a deal. And don't try any tricks. If you do, I will know about it before you have finished counting the money. My meeting with the high potentate of Becarato was an infuriating ordeal of delay. Somehow or other, the granting of oil rights seemed to be inexorably tied up with native dances and ceremonies and rituals, but the best I could manage was to leave the contracts with him and get in exchange a half-promise that he would sign them. I wondered if Schweig's fascinating messenger boy would be content with the arrangements. He was waiting for me there, all right. I came prepared, but I have been informed that the Alafin did not sign the contracts. Look, if you know they weren't signed, you also know I made them out the way you wanted them in favor of the Par Schweig and you represent my job here is finished. Even if I wanted to stick in Bicarada until the old Dola gets around to signing them, I couldn't. Not with Baron in town. I want the money. I've got it coming to me. Now, do you understand? Now. I'm not sure Schweig would approve. You've got the money in your side pocket. I can see the bulge. Now, pull it out and start... Watch out. Lime. Baron. Baron knows. <laughs> dead almost before I reached over and took the money from his side pocket. I could hear him topple from his chair as Baron and a handful of thugs burst into the room through the doorway, which one of them had shot him. They fired after me as I streaked out of the back door and I reached the rear of the hotel and jumped into the Citroën. Stepped on the start and as the motor caught, I clashed the gears the car leaped toward a narrow, torturous street. I wasn't sure where it led, but already I could hear other cars starting behind me. Natives and animals sprang out of my way as I careened down the winding street. The cars were further away now, but Ahead of me, I could see people milling about near a dimly lit cafe. There was a figure in white. Suddenly, I could see there was the girl, the American girl from the hotel. I don't know why, but something made me stop. It's mine. Help me, help me. Oh, jump in. Get me away from here quickly. Hold on. Out of the way. Watch out. What were you doing in the native quarter? I... George Harris wouldn't take me where I wanted to go, and I wanted to see the places, the places you spoke about this afternoon. So I slipped out of the hotel after dinner, and I, I went to that native cafe back there. A horrible place. Two natives came up to my table, and I started to sneak out, and they followed me. Oh, I was never so happy to see anyone in my life. That's all right, honey. I'll take care of you. It'll be all right. But I can't call you 19 years old, uh, American girl. <laughs> well... My name's Marion Lawrence. Hello, Marion. I'm an orphan, and a distant relative of mine died a few months ago and left me a little money. So I quit my job and decided to take a world cruise. And to George Harris? No, I, I didn't take one of those planned cruises. I just happened to join the conducted tour to Becarado last weekend. And I wish I'd never come now. You better send a wire to Harris, though. He might notify your relatives or someone if you don't show up at the hotel. Well, there's no one to notify. I have no relatives or friends over here. Mm-hmm. Have your passport with you? No, I haven't. Well, I know someone near the border who's very talented as an engraver. However, we might obviate a lot of trouble by having him make out your passports with some new names. Say, uh, 
Mr. and Mrs. Joe Smith of Cleveland, Ohio, that might do for both of us. How's that sound to you? Sounds real exciting. Like we were spies or espionage agents or something. <laughs> Marion was enthralled with the excitement and the romance of our adventure. It would take time for Varen, whoever else might be following me, to pick up the trail. But by the time we'd crossed the border, all of that was changed. Marion and I were Mr. and Mrs. Joe Smith of Cleveland, Ohio, USA. Oh, yes, it was working perfectly because, as far as I could tell, Marion was the perfect bride, adoring, starry-eyed, and really in love with me. Because she was in love with me, she asked no embarrassing questions. It was an added feature, too. It had become apparent that her little inheritance wasn't so little at all. Her purse contained a roll of large denomination bills big enough to choke a custom official. Did I embarrass you, dear, insisting on paying for my own clothes? Oh, no, you didn't embarrass me at all. But I'm constantly being surprised to find that you can buy Parisian models almost anywhere in the world if you have the money. Do you think it's safe traveling by car? Don't you think maybe we'd better leave it and take a train, Harry? I told you to get in the habit of calling me Joe. I'm sorry. Why shouldn't I be safe? What are you hinting at? Oh, nothing. It's just that you told me the car was rented, and I thought... Well, stop thinking. Oh, I'm... I'm sorry, Marion, old girl. Nerves, I guess. The nerves lasted all that week as we crossed border after border. Becarado was a long way back now, but I still kept imagining that I saw Varen and crowds as we went through custom offices. I thought I caught a glimpse of Schweig as we ate dinner in a funny little restaurant in Istanbul. Even though I'd seen him die, I could have sworn I saw the pockmarked face of the chief teller of the Bank International as we walked into a railroad office in Bucharest. By the time we'd reached Vienna, I think I'd almost begun to enjoy my role as the somewhat bucolic tourist. Are you happy, Joe? Dangerously. <laughs> the way I feel, I might never want to leave here. <laughs> I'd hate to think of what all this rich food would do to my figure if we stayed. I suppose neither of us have ordered anything more to eat or drink. Well, it sounds as though there's plenty for all of us. Harris. George Harris. You don't mind if I join you? You talk like a cop, old man. I'm with the FBI of the United States. By the way, Harry Lyme, I think you might be interested in knowing that the elephant got a little tired of all your intrigue the day after you left. He awarded the oil leases to the U.S. So then Schweig's after me, too. What charges have you got against me? Charges? We have no charges against you. It still isn't against the law to be a skunk. Well, if there are no charges against me, I... I've just been helping the Becurata authorities track down your sweet little bride. Why? Mary? I'm sorry, Harry. The night you picked her up in Becurata, she was fleeing from the hotel, where she just shot and killed her aging husband. You ready to leave, Marion? Uh, Yes. Just a minute. Marion... I want to get this straight. It's no use talking, Harry. What he says is true. You mean, you mean that's why you came away with me? You mean I was the sucker? You've been using no, me? Harry. Okay, I've been a lot of things in my life. I've even been married now. I've even been a sucker. But that's one that doesn't go in the book. But, George, I don't see how you traced us. The big bills your wife spent on the trip. You see, her doting husband, uh, not you, the one she killed, cashed a large check at the Bank International a few hours before she did away with him. Luckily, the chief teller made a list of the serial numbers. Come on, Marion. Well, goodbye, Lime. By the way, where are you planning to be? 
You may need you for the trial. Well, you can always look for me, old man. There's no law against that. Tell you what, I'll give you a little hint. The elephant maybe hasn't signed that oil contract. You may need a little advice after all, so you'll probably find me in Becerrado for a while. There's a fortune teller I want to look up. I owe him some money. So long, Marion. Goodbye, old man. May your beard never grow white. May your shadow never grow less. And now, Harry Lyme. It was a short marriage, but a very pleasant one. And if you should settle down somewhere and start enjoying easy living, rich food, and fine liquor, don't worry about what it'll do to your figure. Just about the fat it tends to develop between the ears. Lives of Harry Lyme, September 14th, 1951, Love Affair, Orson Welles starring in, uh, yeah, the prequel to the movie The Third Man. Hope you enjoyed that. Did you like it, Lisa? I, I like the it. music, too, yeah, right? Yeah, it's very catchy. I mean, right? of course, not as catchy as Dragnet, but, you know, no, it's good. That's a zither. It's a zither. Zither. Yeah, played by Anton Karras. Um, very cool series, Orson Welles. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's more on the WGN Radio Theater. Nostalgia Digest. Very cool. I like the Nostalgia Digest a lot. Um, hey, you know what, Lisa? Well, have you seen any movies lately? Movies? Yeah. I have, actually. What'd you see? Uh, this week, I saw Bombshell with my How daughter. How was that? Um, you know, it was good. Not amazing. Mm-hmm. I liked it. I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it has a great Charlize cast. Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron. She plays, um, don't tell me, uh, she plays, oh gosh, like a news girl from they're, Fox they're, News, right? Yeah, they're all news girls. There's Charlene Theron plays Megan Kelly. Okay, Megan Kelly. And she and looks just like her and sounds just like it's her. It's really amazing yeah. how all of these actresses looked so much like the actual person. We had Margot Robbie, um, who played I think it was. She's not hard on the eyes. No, she's not. Mm -mm. Um, But she played actually somebody who's fictitious, not an actual uh, person, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Nicole Kidman. She was fantastic as well. What did Um, she play? uh, She played. uh, I don't remember the name of the person. Honestly, Mm -hmm. there was John Lithgow who was in it. He was really good. He's such a great actor. So good. So it it was interesting. I mean, do you know the the plot of the movie? Well, I kind of do. It's it's having to do with like a a sort of a scandal that happened at Fox. Yeah, I mean, it's based on that data, Um, and uh, you know, it's all about sexual harassment Mm -hmm. and how it was handled Mm -hmm. and dealt with. And um, John Lithgow, man, I mean, I believed everything that came out of his mouth. He he sat there and, you know, he was uh, he was the one who wanted to see the girls, you know, lift up their dresses. Oh, and, really? So oh, he yeah. Was the, he was the He perv. was the guy. <laughs> yeah, and twirl around for me. That was his thing. Oh, give, give me my. a twirl, he'd say. Yeah. So there was a guy at Fox News that was like that? Well, that's what the movie says. I mean, I don't know how much of it is he actually, would actually factual. would say twirl around? Well, that's what he did in the movie. I <laughs> no wasn't on way. Fox News. But no way. Yeah, interesting. Have you seen anything lately? Um, 
Mm, what did I no see? No movies? Yeah, I took my son to see the latest Star Wars movie, and he did not like that movie at all. What What was the title? I don't know. The latest one. <laughs> whichever one is out right now. You so, want to hear something crazy, though? What? I have never seen a Star Wars movie. You know, I'm not a big Star Wars freak or anything. I've seen some, but so many years ago, and I'm not really. But why wouldn't I? I mean, I mean, you know, I like sci-fi. I know you do. I mean, I'm not. I think you have to start from the beginning. I mean, you know? sci-fi is not like my favorite genre. Although, you know what? I'm what? not a huge sci-fi fan, but you know what? I really like Black Mirror. Well, I like Black Mirror, yeah. but I was talking about Twilight Zone. Yeah. And I went on my on-demand recently, mm. and I started watching the Twilight Zones the from the beginning. Ones? From the beginning. Really? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, I watched maybe the first three or four episodes, and I'm sort of back into it again. I remember sitting and watching them as a kid, right before I'd go to bed. I'd had a little black That's and white television. That's a little you know, I know. out there. I know. I had a black and white television in my room, and I used to watch the Rod Twilight Serling Zone. Had some. Yep. The great thing, you know, and the reason why I wanted to turn the Twilight Zone into a radio series, I mean, you know, it came... So the year that I started doing it was 2002. I had sold my company, right? I had sold a company in 1998, worked for the new owners. That was a mistake. I didn't like that at all. <laughs> I don't think I you'd be wa- good working for no. anyone. I had, well, I started a company in my parents' basement, right? And then I sold it in 1998 to a public company. And I was like wanting to do something different. And I thought, you know what? I'll do a new time radio show, right? Right. Because I was dealing with all the classic radio shows. And growing up, I, I loved The Twilight Zone. Yep. Loved watching it. And I always felt that that series could be done better on radio because it was such an imaginative series. Yeah. But you got makeup the makeup was bad and the you know the costumes were bad when there right. would be like the monsters the production qualities were were you know just really antiquated they really were and you know they just didn't have the special effects right. you needed for that i mean you're talking about the greatest sci-fi writers of the era right. rod serling was not per se a sci-fi writer but he did write a lot of those stories but he had a lot you know george clayton johnson and all these different amazing writers and it, Ray Bradbury even wrote one, and it what you just wouldn't work. It doesn't to me watching it is not as good as the theater of the mind, right? Even though well, it's great. Right I mean, Twilight that. Zone's great. Don't get me wrong. I love the Twilight yeah, Zone TV I, show, I, and I, I enjoy it. And I enjoy it. Yep. But I think when you listen to the radio shows, and of course I'm biased because I produced it, but when you listen to the shows, you can you can see those monsters, and you can see the right. And they're that much more vivid in your mind. Alien worlds and things. And we had so many great actors on there. Yeah. I mean, when I think back of all of the actors that I had on that series, I mean, Luke Perry, who passed away last year, I was so saddened by that because he he did a lot of those for me. And then, you know, Lou Diamond Phillips. We had Michael York. I had Lou Gossett Jr., um, you know, or, you know, uh, Jason Alexander did a bunch of them. Yeah. He used to. It's funny. I used to call up Jason and I'd say, "Hey, I got a couple of scripts for you," and he'd say, "Is that all you have? Is two? Don't you have more?" <laughs> he loved doing them. Yeah, I. He's one of the people that I long to meet. Yeah, Don uh, Johnson did some for me. Ernie Hudson, um, uh, Jane Seymour did yeah. some. Jim Caviezel did some. 
Um, man, I'll tell you, we had a we had a really great lineup of people. Sean Astin, yeah, Malcolm McDowell. You had a great product, and it was a great process. It was. Um, it was fun from to do. Beginning to end, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. We, we I had a studio in Schaumburg. And they would fly in, you know, to the Schaumburg Airport there. Really? And, yeah, a lot of them would. And they'd fly into the Schaumburg Airport, and we'd that pick them up. That executive airport, yeah, isn't it like Palatine or something. No, no, we'd Pal-Waki? there was a no, it was a little Schaumburg? no Schaumburg Airport. I it, didn't know there it was, was right one. down the block from. Oh my gosh! From my office, yeah, and they would fly in there on a private chat a lot of the times, and then we, would you know, cater it. And come there and do the do the shows. It was a blast. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then Stacy Keach was the host. Right. Remember when you picked him up at the airport? I that did. One time? I picked him up at the airport. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny, Lisa. <laughs> so he was very. Um, he was he was he was very um, diligent about where to pick him up. He didn't want to be picked up at the um where you normally would be picked right. up. Right. He did it upstairs. He did it upstairs. Not at, the at O'Hare is downstairs. You pick people up. But that wasn't so the problem. He wanted to be picked up at I was departures upstairs. and you No, that wasn't the problem. What was the problem? The problem if you want to be clear. <laughs> what was the, the problem? The problem is that you had originally asked somebody else to pick him up. Oh, is that what it was? And um that someone else uh, you you just didn't work out. It didn't work out. No, and then you asked me to do it. So yeah. I did it, but you didn't tell Stacy Keats <laughs> that it was somebody else. So he was still trying to call that someone else oh. instead of me. Poor Stacy. And so um he was calling somebody who wasn't answering and I was waiting there for him. Yeah. And, and so Stacey, it was pretty much all your fault. Let me tell you something. Stacy is the nicest guy in the world. Well, he too. wasn't very happy he wasn't when he happy got in my car. Day. No, he wasn't happy that no, day. But we, we, we calmed down and we ultimately had dinner together. Yeah. Remember we all yes, went out I for did. dinner? That was night. great. Yeah. Yep. That was great. Ah, uh, those were the days. Those were. But I'm going to do a new sh- a series. Yeah. I'm doing a new, I'm working on a new series. Um, and it's going to be really good. Got high it's going to be for really you, scary, Lisa. Yeah. Scary. Scary is great. Um, you know, Twilight Zone was was not necessarily scary. Kind of creepy. It was more, creepy and yeah. more Twilight Zoney, um, sci-fi-y. But this new series that I'm going to do, oh boy, wait. Okay. You want to be in it? I do. Lisa wants to act in it. Sure, I do. You know, we're going to be acting on the cruise too. We're going to do this yes. cruise, and we're going to be we're going to Bermuda August first of this year, and we're going to do some reenactments. We're going there. to have you guys join us. This is not only a cruise to enjoy Bermuda and to enjoy the uh, luxury life of a luxury cruise liner, but it's a classic radio cruise. Yeah. So I can't think of anything better to come to, uh, marry come all to those uh, Bermuda with us. Carl's going to be my cabana boy. Yep. We're going to have August first, and we're going to have nights. a lot of fun. Seven nights. Uh, you can call our travel agency, Keen Luxury Travel, for more information. Their number is 800-856-1155. Right, or go to WGNRadioTheater.com. Scroll down, and there is a banner. You click it, and it gives you all the yeah, information. We hope you'll join us in Bermuda. Make sure you come with us, folks. Oh, we're oh, so excited. Gonna, you know, it's going to be 85 degrees. It's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Lisa's going to be barking orders at me. Go get me a pina colada. That's right. And, you know, get me this, get and me that. You're going to say how many I'll be, I'll be like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Whatever you say. In my dreams. In our next hour, Father Knows Best. Hour four of the WGN Radio Theater. Speaking of movies, Lisa, um, did you watch um, the uh, movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I did didn't. You, you didn't see that? Nope. But your husband saw that, right? Dan saw it, right? 
Uh, I don't, he, I don't recall. Like <laughs> I don't remember. you said he didn't like it. Uh, I wasn't sure I think if you he saw, saw it. it. I didn't see it. So, to me, that was one of the best movies of Well, you're not alone. A lot of people feel that I way. I thought that was so great. Um, and I watched um, The Irishman on Netflix, and that was, I was, it was okay. I thought it was, yeah. it was a little bit kind of boring. Just a little bit boring. And I like Martin Scorsese. Yeah, of course. One of my favorite directors. Um, but uh, the movie for me of 2019 was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or whatever. They well, I, I cannot comment. You know, Quentin Tarantino, Brad yeah. Pitt, Leonardo well, I mean, DiCaprio. I, I know about the movie. <laughs> Great movie. Yeah. What, the movie I'm dying to go see, I'm going to go see it maybe Little this Women? week. No, is uh, <laughs> 1917. Oh, 1917. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I just saw that. I just watched Spielberg. the trailer for that. Oh, I can't wait it's to at watch the that. Theater right yeah, near that me. looks yeah. really, really good. All right, in this hour, Father Knows Best. Good yeah. comedy, Robert Young starring, and he was the only guy that uh, made the, the, the transition. transition. Yeah. Isn't that show also on Antenna TV? That oh, yeah. Father Knows Best. Sure, on Father it. Knows Best. I think they Best. had a marathon, a Father Knows Best marathon recently. Uh, most of the shows that we air on uh, WGN Radio Theater made the transition to television, right. like Gunsmoke in our right. next hour and you can watch the counterparts on Antenna right. TV. So this hour, Father Knows Best, Robert Young. Uh, before that, though, we will play or listen to our segment, uh, which is called Just the Facts. Just the Facts. And that's coming your way after these words. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect it's the It's true when you have the right statistics. That's true. And when I don't, then it's not true. Yeah. So we're going to do... Well, we're just to do, clarify. Just to clarify. So, um, yeah. So Jolton Joe DiMaggio did strike out 36 times he in did. 1951. And, and my facts were incorrect. It's and okay. And I stand corrected. You know what? And, and now we've got the Let's facts. Let's see. Finally, 2020. It took you... It took you... How many years? <laughs> Four Fifty-five and a half. years. Well, here's the thing, though. Um, to finally be wrong. I found the statistic where I found it, and I showed it to you, and, and it, it was matter. wrong. You're well, wrong. it does matter. But you were wrong. <laughs> no, the research was wrong. But, but you know what, Lisa? What, Carl? You give it your all, and that's all that's that matters. That's for certain. You give it 110%. That is, that is true. I, Even when you're wrong, you give I'm it 110%. Right. Even when I'm wrong, I'm still right. That's right. So we're going to play a little that's Just wrong, the Facts. you're right. <laughs> we're going to talk about some fun facts, trivia in history for the year 1950, which is the Father Knows Best show that we are just about to hear. So, yeah. 1950, Sunset... Are these all correct? These Yes, uh, these yeah. are correct, because okay. even when I'm wrong, I'm uh, right. Okay. Sunset Boulevard was a 1950 wow, yeah. film Swanson. directed by Billy Wilder, mm-hmm. and of course, William Gloria Holden. S- and William Holden, yeah, and Gl- yeah. Gloria Swanson played she was, Norma Desmond. Yes. I'll have my close-up, please. This is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Mr. DeMille. Just us. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And there you have it. Yeah, that's, one you know, of the most good, famous lines. Really good movie, too. Have you ever seen it? Have you ever watched the movie? It's really a, quite a film noir. I've actually seen parts of it, but what I have seen is the show multiple times on stage. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah. Yes. The movie is really, really good. I mean, it's what's so... I think it might have been the first time other than... I think later they did the movie DOA, you know, Dead on Arrival, yep. and they did sort of the same premise where the guy is 
dead telling right. the story, what happened to him. Right. You know, same thing with DOA. But, the, you know, that was pretty new to do something like that in 1950. Yeah. Well, this is still a current show that I've seen. Uh, Broadway in Chicago did it. Drury Lane did it. So this is a show that is still quite popular today. So mm. it's really persisted through time. 1950. 1950. Huh? Still on 1950 on February 15th, Walt Disney released Cinderella. That's the original Cinderella. And the uh, love song duet from the 1950 version of Cinderella. So this is the miracle that I've been dreaming of. Even the music has a different feel to it. It's very yeah. romantic, Carl. Put me right to sleep. Maybe you so could use a little any romance, romance in your life. <laughs> puts me to sleep. Any, anything about romance puts me to sleep. Like, I guess I'm just not a romantic person. Well, isn't it funny that Cinderella has, again, persisted through time? It started in 1950, and children born today are still watching, obviously, the well, yeah. you know updated versions of Cinderella. It's, sure. a, it's a love story. Yeah. You know, you're not familiar with love stories, <laughs> but I'll teach you. And the most popular toys in 1950 were Wooly Willy. What's a Willy Willy? A Wooly Willy. Wooly Willy? Do you remember that? Was that what's... It's that board that has a little magnetic... Uh, thing and you move the little magnet pieces around to to make a space i have no idea you don't know what woolly willy is no all right i'll show you i'll pull it up no online. idea what you know a these willy. two the magic eight ball i know what bule bule there is, you go but same i don't know thing. what a woolly willy yeah, it's is the same. i'll show it to you there's the magic eight ball magic eight ball so like you shake it you and turn, turn it, it around and, and it, it says you, 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 you ask are, it a question it would always say to me you are a dingleberry no there was no dingleberry on the magic eight ball you are um uh, dorky you clearly never had a magic eight ball you need to get out ma- more nope none of those That's were on there say to me <laughs> be like try again next time no, or try to make friends nope you never had a magic eight ball you had a uh, stilted childhood and the third one is silly putty oh yeah yeah that now I loved Silly Putty. You know what? Hmm. I just realize all of these toys, mm-hmm. all three of them are toys that you could go out and buy today. Yeah. All of them. Do you remember when you would take Silly Putty and then you would take the the comics, you know, like, you know, you get the yeah. comics and you would put like it the on there. Like Dennis the Menace kind of thing. And you'd put the Silly Putty on the, on the it, color it comics. Right it comes right off on there. And it would be on the Silly Putty. Yep, I know. And then you That's would just, thing. then you'd twist Smush it and it all that. together. Yeah. And then you put it back in the little egg. Yeah, and I used to feel like I was getting ripped off because there wasn't very much silly putty in this big egg. It was very small. They'd give you in like this big egg. You'd be like, oh, wow, this whole egg's got silly putty yeah. in it. You open it up, and it's just got a well, little bit honestly, of silly putty in I it. Honestly, I think you were ripped off because you didn't have a woolly willy. What's that? I don't know what a woolly willy is. I'll show you. All right. Well, okay. uh, thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Carl. That segment brought to you by Cat's Pride. And it's time now for Father Knows Best, situation comedy series. And, uh, of course, we all remember it as a television series. It airs on Tenet TV a lot. started on radio in 1949. The whole series was set in the Midwest. Robert Young played general insurance agent Jim Anderson. That's a good trivia question right there. Like, what was what was his profession? Yeah. He was an insurance agent. Yep. Um, many people might think, oh, maybe he was a doctor. No, that was Marcus Welby. Oh, no, that was later. His wife, Margaret, his daughters were Betty and Kathy. His son was Bud. 
And it was a situation comedy series. And it lasted on radio until 1954. That was the same year it moved to television. Robert Young was the only cast member that made the transition. Everybody else was booted. They gave them all the pink slip. Yep. They came out of the radio studio. They're thinking, hey, we're going to get on TV. And they were like, you're gone. (laughs) Um, So there you have it. We have a radio broadcast for you now called Superstitious Folk. Uh, They're all kind of have superstitions in the family. Uh, Robert Young starring from May 25th, 1950, uninterrupted. Here is Father Knows Best. Mother, is Maxwell House really the only coffee in the world? Well, your father says so, and your father knows best. It's Father Knows Best, transcribed in Hollywood, starring Robert Young as father. A half-hour visit with your neighbors, the Andersons. Brought to you by America's favorite coffee, Maxwell House. The coffee that's always good to the last drop. Since the dark beginnings of time, superstition has played a dismal part in the fumbling progress of man. We, however, live in an enlightened age, and, thank goodness, we've thrown off the yoke of ignorant superstition. Well, I mean, knocking on wood isn't really a superstition. You do it just because... Well, anyway, in Springfield, in the white frame house on Maple Street, we find Jim Anderson packing for a trip to Chicago. And for a change, everything is peaceful and quiet. Like this. Jim, it certainly won't hurt to take them along. Margaret, I'm only going to be gone three days. How many pairs of socks do you think I can wear? Well, you never can tell, dear, and it's best to be on the safe side. Twelve pairs of socks. Anybody think I was going to Alaska for the entire winter? Jim, they weigh practically nothing, and I certainly All think... right, all right, put them in. I'll have enough socks for everybody at the whole convention. Dad! We're upstairs, bud. Jim, you don't need all those shirts. What do you mean, all those shirts? I'm only taking six. But you'll only be away three days. You said so yourself. (laughs) But, honey, I've got to look neat. All the big shots from the home office will be there. I think three shirts are quite enough. You just have to be a little careful, that's all. Okay, three shirts. Fine thing, a man can't even pack the bag away he wants to. Say, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? About what? Well, handkerchiefs. Mustn't forget handkerchiefs. I've already put them in, dear. Oh, thank you. Well, what is it, bud? Uh, could I have three dollars? No. What, uh, happened to that bottle opener I had in the top drawer? Jim, if it's going to be that kind of convention... It isn't, Margaret, but I just thought... Well, never mind. Dad. But I said no. I know, Dad, but this is an emergency. What kind of an emergency? The worst kind. I've never known you to have any other. Why do you need three dollars? Well, it's for the baseball team. I need another bat. You mean you've broken the old one already? No, but... Well, I... I think I've used up all the hits. You what? I'm in an awful slump, Dad. I haven't had a hit in two weeks. And if I can just buy a bat with some hits in it... That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) You've got a perfectly good bat. Why waste $3 on another one? But, Dad, I've got to do something to change my luck. Luck. Superstitious twaddle. 
If you can't get a hit with the old bat, you won't get one with the new one either. But, Dad... Particularly if I have to pay for it. Well, I guess I'm all packed. You haven't forgotten anything, have you, dear? I don't think so. But how about taking the bag downstairs like a good fellow? Okay, but look, Dad, we're playing a very important game this afternoon. And... Just a moment, bud. What is it, Kathy? I don't care what she says, you can't go. Mother, Betty says I can't go to the club with her this afternoon. And you said I could. I said I'd ask her, dear. Mother, it's bad enough going out with a boy I don't even know. But if I have to drag her along... They're going to play tennis, and I want to watch. Kathy, if Betty says you can't go, then you can't go. Now stop arguing. You love her more than you love me. <laughs> that's why you're always sticking up for her. I'm not sticking up for anybody. You can watch Bud play baseball. No! <laughs> what? Holy cow, Dad. You don't know what you're doing. Oh, I don't, huh? She's worse than a black cat. She's, she's worse than an umpire. Now, listen, Bud. There's no reason... But, Dad, you've never heard her. She sounds like a fire siren. She gets both teams rattled. <laughs> hmm. Bunch of sand lotters. <laughs> It's all right, Kathy. You can stay home with me this afternoon. But I want to do something. We'll find something to do. How about the bag, bud? Okay. Not having enough trouble. They want me to take her along. Father. What is it, Betty? Is Mr. Davis's nephew tall and dark? How do I know? I've never even seen him. What difference does it make anyway? Well, Janie Liggett told my fortune yesterday, and the card said to be careful of a tall, dark man. And if he's tall and dark... Betty... If he's eight feet tall and has hair made of licorice, you're still going out with him. He's only going to be in town this weekend, and I gave Ed Davis my word. But, Father... Most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life. Just because Janie Liggett hasn't got a brain in her head... It wasn't Janie's idea, Father. She has a fortune-telling set, and it's wonderful. It costs four dollars. Oh, pardon me. I thought it was one of the cheap two-dollar sets. <laughs> Jim, I... No, you're going to say it's silly, but I did have a dream about a wedding last night. Margaret, not you, too. Well, you remember my grandmother, Williams. The Hottentot kid. <laughs> Jim, Grandmother Williams was a very sweet woman. And she said when you dream of a wedding, it means trouble. Well, that depends on who's getting married. Jim. <laughs> you certainly don't believe in that poppycock, do you? Well... No, but if Betty's going to feel uneasy... Feel uneasy about what? Since when is a dream something to be afraid of? I'm not afraid of dreams, Daddy. Nine years old, and she's the only intelligent one in the whole house. <laughs> You're a very sensible little girl, Kathy. I'm not afraid of anything. Because I've got a lucky penny and a rabbit's foot and a horseshoe and... Margaret, what's gotten into this family, anyway? These aren't the Middle Ages. This is the 20th century. We're supposed to be intelligent human beings. Jim, it's not that we believe in these things. Then what does it mean? All this twaddle about dreams and fortune tellers and bats with hits in them? You sound like a bunch of Stone Age simpletons. Why, Father! Now, just a moment, Jim Anderson. You have just as many silly little superstitions as anyone else. I certainly do not. You most certainly do. Kathy... Yes, Daddy? Go downstairs and help Bud. What's he doing? How do I know what he's doing? Go downstairs and find out. And help him. 
Now, see here, Margaret. Yes? In my time, I've walked under hundreds of ladders, broken thousands of mirrors, ignored millions of black cats, and if you can call that being superstitious... I'll bet that's Charlie. Who? Charlie Davis, and Father, if he's tall and dark... Betty. But, Father, Janie said... I don't care what Janie said. You are going out with Charlie Davis. Oh, poo. Betty, it's for you. She'll be right down, bud. Go ahead, Betty. If this is the 20th century, why do I have to be treated like somebody's slave? I don't know what's gotten into that girl. What are you looking for, dear? My gray hat was right up here on the shelf. It's downstairs in the hall closet. Yeah, I mean my old gray hat, the one I always wear to conventions. Jim, it was all worn out. It was dirty and the ribbon was faded. Margaret, what did you do with my hat? <laughs> well, I gave it to Mr. Adams. Mr... You mean the junk man? Yes, dear. You gave my hat to the junk man? Jim, you have a brand new hat. Margaret, how could you do a thing like that to me? That was my luck. I mean, uh, how could you? But you said... I've worn that hat to conventions for 15 years. You know I never go to a convention without it. What were you thinking of? He is tall, and he's got the blackest hair you ever saw. I won't go with him, and you can't make me. Oh, I can't, can't I? Betty Anderson, you'll go out with that boy, or you'll never go out again. But, Father... I'm having enough trouble. Give a man's hat away at a time like this. Betty, after all, your father knows best, and if he... Thinks... All right, I'll go. But if anything happens to me, you'll have no one to blame but yourself. Betty, your father's going away. Aren't you going to say goodbye? Sure. Goodbye. And I hope you have a very nice time. Most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. A perfectly good hat sitting up on a shelf, not hurting a soul. Jim, you said you weren't superstitious. Superstitious? What has superstition got to do with it? I like that hat. It was the best hat I've ever had. But it was all worn out. It was a perfect hat for going to conventions, and you know it. But... Jim... You want me, Dad? Get Mr. Adams on the phone. Oh... Mr. Adams. The junk man? Tell him I want my gray hat back. It's in the closet, Dad. My old gray hat. Tell him I'll give him $5 for it. For that hat? Bud. Okay, Dad. Jim, you're being very foolish about this whole thing. Oh, I am, am I? Just because I have a lucky... Uh, just because I happen to like a certain hat, I'm being foolish. That's fine. Jim, your train leaves in less than an hour. Well, let it leave. I'll take a plane. I'll walk. But until Mr. Adams comes back with my hat, Daddy. I'm not going to... What is it, Kathy? Mr. Davis is here. Oh, no. What does he want? <coughs> I'll be right down, Ed. Take your time, Jim. No hurry. Jim, please don't make a fuss in front of Ed. Of course not. You know I've got better sense than that. I do? <laughs> well, I guess I've got everything except my hat. I don't understand, Jim, after that long speech you made about dreams and fortune-tellers. Margaret, my hat has nothing to do with dreams and fortune-tellers. Isn't a question of superstition or anything like that. I merely want my hat. And in the future, will you please leave my things alone? Yes, dear. I'm not asking for anything unusual. Just don't give my hats to the junk man. All right, dear. Jim, I'm sorry to barge in at a time like this. I know you must be kind of busy. Well, it's all right. How are you, Ed? Fine, Margaret, just fine. Jim, I have some property in Chicago, and I wonder if you'll do me a big favor while you're there. Sure, Ed, I'll be glad to. Dad, Mr. Adams wasn't there. 
That's impossible. He must be there. Okay, but Mrs. Adams said he wasn't. <laughs> She's going to see if she can find him. Margaret, now do you see what you've done? Jim, you said... I know what I said, but good grief. Anything wrong, Jim? Everything's wrong. We've had nothing but trouble all day. My good hat's gone. The junk man's gone. Betty didn't even want to go out with your nephew just because he's tall and dark. You mean Charlie? Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous? Oh, I don't understand. Oh, Janie Liggett has some kind of an idiotic set that tells fortunes, and she told Betty... Oh, I understand that part, all right. Used to be quite a hand with a Ouija board. But I don't understand about Charlie. Oh, well, there's nothing to worry about, Ed. She went with him, even though he is tall and dark. But he isn't. Charlie's short, and he has red hair. <laughs> oh, no. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire, burn, and cauldron bubble. It's a far cry from the witches of Macbeth to the Andersons of Springfield, but not as far as you might think. An hour has passed, and the situation has altered only slightly. Bud is out playing baseball. Kathy is out playing, well, whatever it is that nine-year-old girls play. But in the white frame house on Maple Street, the air is charged with nervous tension. Not a word has been heard from Betty. And the Andersons and Ed Davis can do nothing but wait. Like this. Don't like this. Don't like it at all. Look, Ed, I don't care what you do, but do something. Well, let's try this. Hmm, let me see now. Jim, I don't understand how you can sit there at a time like this and play canasta. <laughs> well, what do you want me to do? Margaret, we haven't left a stone unturned. We've called all her friends, the club, all the authorities... And they've promised to let us know the second either one of them turns up. There must be someone else we can call. Like who? I'm not even sure calling the police was such a good idea. Jim, you've got to understand my position. After all, Charlie's my nephew, and we don't know where he is, the idiot. We don't know where Betty is, or how the boy with the dark hair got into it. It's very confusing. Whose turn is it? Well, the whole thing is certainly nothing to worry about. Just because Janie Liggett is a superstitious little twerp... Jim... After all the fuss you made about your hat, how can you call anyone superstitious? My hat has nothing to do with it. And I didn't make a fuss. Then why did you miss your train? Because I decided to fly. I wanted to find out what happened to Betty. That's all. Nothing complicated about it. And it has nothing to do with superstition. I guarantee that when Betty shows up, there'll be a perfectly logical explanation of the whole thing. Well, I hope you're right. Of course I'm right. Go ahead, Ed. It's your turn. You haven't put down a card. Oh. Well, uh, just a minute. Certainly taking long enough. I have a right to think about it, don't I? Just don't rush me. You know, when I was a boy, we lived in an old house on the north side, and the place was simply crawling with ghosts. Well, one day... Wait a minute, Ed. Don't tell me you believe in ghosts. Why not? Well, it's ridiculous. Everybody knows there's no such thing. Oh, they do, do they? Well, let me tell you, Jim, there wasn't a night went by... Betty? It's me, Mom. Oh, I'm sorry, Ed. What are you doing home, bud? Thought you were going to play baseball. Well, I started to play, but... Gosh, Dad, I told you that bat wasn't any good. Bud, what on earth happened to your eye? Ye gods, another shiner. Bud, have you been fighting again? 
I got hit with a baseball. That's great. You know, if this keeps up, you're going to have that eye worn out. I couldn't help it, Dad. I asked you to let me buy another bat. You were hit with a ball. What does a bat have to do with it? Well, they took me out for a pinch hitter. And while I was sitting on the bench, I got hit in the eye. There, you see. That's what you get for being superstitious. Why aren't you on the train? Who said anything about a train? Jim, Bud is only doing the things you taught him. I taught him? When did I teach him anything about a bat with no hits in it? Well, it amounts to the same thing. Just because you're concerned over a silly old hat. I'm not concerned about my hat. The hat has nothing to do with it. And, Margaret, will you please stop changing the subject? Oh, no, not again. What was that? The glazier's delight. Kathy! Bud, tell Kathy to come in here, please. Okay. Tells me I can't get a new bat and then blames the whole thing on me. As I was saying, Jim, we had a rocking chair in our living room. And every night it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Well, what does that prove? Well, it certainly wasn't moving all by itself. <laughs> you know, Ed, you certainly have some very peculiar ideas. I don't see anything peculiar about them at all. And if you weren't so doggone stubborn, stubborn, me, you're the one who's being stubborn. I'll show you a dozen books that prove there's no such thing as a ghost. And I'll show you two dozen books that prove there are. Jim, my grandmother, William, said that when she was a girl... Now, there's a great authority for you. <laughs> a dame who spent half her life running around with Hottentots. She was a very sweet woman, and you have no right to make fun of her. I'm not making fun of her. I'm merely trying to tell you that superstition is silly. Where did you get that hat? What? Hmm? Oh... Nothing. I was just thinking. Hmm. Come on, will ya? Well, stop pulling me. Why do you always have to pull me? <laughs> Daddy, what did you do out there? I couldn't help it, Daddy. I was trying to make everybody lucky. She heaved a horseshoe through the garage window. <laughs> oh, fine. We just had it fixed. But, Daddy, I was worried about Betty. And they told me if I threw it over my right shoulder... Your left shoulder, Dopey. Well, no wonder. Kathy, do you see what you've done? She was just trying to be helpful, dear. Sure, and I'm going to be set back another $4.20 for a window. But, Daddy, they said it was lucky. Who said it was lucky? The man who fixed the window. <laughs> Look, Kathy, let's examine this thing calmly and with simple logic. Why is a horseshoe lucky? Well... Everybody says it is. Horses have millions of them, and are they lucky? Some of them are. That idiotic rabbit's foot you carry around. Where's the rabbit it used to belong to? Did it bring him any luck? Well, he was lucky while he had it. <laughs> but it didn't keep him from getting shot, did it? He had four feet, four nice, lucky rabbit's feet. He still got shot. He must have looked at the moon over the wrong shoulder. <laughs> now, look, Kathy. Jim. I'll answer it. Dear, if it's Betty, please don't lose your temper. Oh, silliest family I've ever seen. I think we were living in the Middle Ages. Horseshoes and rabbits' feet. Father, how could you do this to me? How could you? You get inside. I'll talk to you later. Officer, we found her at Crandall's drugstore, Mr. Anderson. She was having a soda. And he wouldn't even let me finish. Oh, well, uh... Sorry you were put to all this trouble, officer. I'll see that it doesn't happen again. Oh, that's okay. We're used to it. 
Jim, is it Betty? Mother, why did you do this to me? Having me dragged home by the police and everybody looking at me. Darling, we were so worried. Where's Charlie? What did you do with that rattle-brained redhead? Did you want the boys? Nobody told me to bring them. You mean there were two of them? Father, why didn't you listen to me? I told you I didn't want to go with Tommy. You said it was Charlie. I didn't say it was Charlie. I said he was tall and dark, and Janie Liggett said I was going to have trouble. But you wouldn't listen. I'm sorry I listened in the first place. Who was the other boy? Tommy. Tommy who? I don't know, but he's a friend of Charlie's, and Charlie was trying to get a date for him. And he knew he was going to be late, so he sent Tommy, and we met him down at Mr. Crandall's. And it's all your fault. What's my fault? If you hadn't started that ridiculous thing about Janie Liggett and the tall, dark man... Uh, will you be needing me for anything else? Hmm? Oh, thank you, officer. I think everything's under control now. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. Sounds to me like the whole house is infested with leprechauns. Better leave a bowl of milk out for them tonight. Otherwise, you'll have nothing but trouble. <laughs> thank you, officer. We'll, uh, do just that. Now we've got leprechauns. Betty... What happened to that idiot nephew of mine? Nothing. When the policeman came, he and Tommy didn't know what to do. So, they're having another soda. Uh, just wait till I get my hands on that carrot-headed numbskull. Just wait. Uh, it wasn't his fault, Ed. The whole thing was a very unfortunate misunderstanding, that's all. It's more than that. It's a perfect example of what I've been trying to tell you. You see what superstition has done to this family? Jim, it's not that important. It is important. We're supposed to be a healthy, normal American family. And what happened to us? We become involved in a bunch of old-world superstitions, and all our lives are affected. Bud gets a black eye, Kathy breaks a window, Betty gets the whole neighborhood upset with her tall, dark strangers. Jim, it's very well to scoff at superstition, but when I was a boy... Ye gods, now what? I tell you, that chair rocked back. Back and forth. Back and forth. Mr. Anderson, my friend, my wonderful friend. It's about time you got here. Where's my hat? Jim, you mustn't blame Mr. Adams. I gave him the hat. Mrs. Anderson, look what I brought for you. The biggest box of candy I could find. This is the biggest box of candy in Springfield. Why, Mr. Adams. Go ahead, take it, take it. I want you to have it. It's for you. Mr. Adams, all we want is the hat. May I please See, have... I brought a doll for the little girl. Presents for everybody. A baseball bat and perfume. Mr. Adams, I have to go to Chicago. May I please have my hat? Look, Mr. Anderson. Cigars. The biggest box I could find. Mr. Adams. Three for a half. That's expensive. But nothing is too good for my friend. Thank you very much. Now may I have my hat? The hat. That wonderful hat. You know, all my life I've been an unlucky man. A junk man. A, a poor peddler. And then... You gave me that hat, that beautiful hat. I said I'd give you five dollars. Oh, I couldn't sell the hat. Not that hat. Ten dollars. Jim. Mr. Anderson. Fifteen dollars. I wouldn't sell it for a million dollars. Haven't you heard what it did for me? I just won the Irish sweepstakes. <laughs> doesn't take long for three days to come and go. Just about three days. 
And that's precisely what's happened in Springfield. Jim Anderson has gone to Chicago and come back again. And now, for the first time in three days, he's at the breakfast table with his family. Like this. I guess I made them sit up and take notice. Right in front of everybody, Mr. Craig said they couldn't have placed the Springfield area in more capable hands. Jim, he didn't. He certainly did. And he's only the president of the company, that's all. Boy, you should have seen the eyes pop. Say, Dad, you know how many hits I got yesterday with the bat Mr. Adams gave me? Six. That's fine, bud. How come you had a game yesterday? Well, it wasn't a regular league game. I was just fooling around with Kathy's team. He hit three home runs Oh, it wasn't so much (laughs) Father Yes, Betty? I'm going to a formal next Friday And I saw the most beautiful dress Again? Betty, your father just got home But Mother, Tommy said it was going to be the most exclusive formal of the year Tommy? You mean the tall, dark one? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh You know, maybe we're going to have trouble with him after all. Jim, let's not get started on that again. It was a very successful convention, wasn't it? It certainly was. I accomplished a great deal. And you did it all without your lucky hat, didn't you? Margaret, I never said it was a lucky hat. I merely said, well, a man's entitled to a few little idiosyncrasies. That's all it was, so let's just forget it. All right, dear. Daddy? Yes, Kathy? Is everything all right now? I mean, you aren't going away on any more trips or anything, are you? No, Kathy, I'm staying right here, and everything's just as fine as it can be. Good. Now, can I please have my rabbit's foot back? Did you know, now there's an instant coffee with roaster fresh, pure coffee flavor. It's Instant Maxwell House. The instant coffee with a famous flavor. The happiest combination in coffee. Wonderful, good-to-the-last-drop flavor, combined with the convenience and thrift of coffee made instantly in the cup. Unlike most instant coffees, it's all rich, pure coffee. Nothing added. Tomorrow, try the instant coffee with a famous flavor. Instant Maxwell House. Instantly good. To the last drop. Join us again next week when we'll be back with Father Knows Best, starring Robert Young as Jim Anderson, with Roy Bargey and the Maxwell House Orchestra, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Don't forget, membership cards for the Robert Young Good Drivers Club are waiting for you at your local NBC station. Get a man-to-man or dad-to-daughter pledge and sign up today. Be a good driver. Get your membership card in the Robert Young Good Drivers Club today. Now until next Thursday, good night and good luck from the makers of Maxwell House, America's favorite brand of coffee. Always good to the last drop. Father Knows Best was transcribed in Hollywood and written by Ed James. Now stay tuned for Screen Guild Theater, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Stay tuned for Screen Guild and The Seventh Fail on NBC.
Maxwell House. It's good to the last drop. It's always good to the last drop. <laughs> so, you know, they've been using that slogan forever. Yeah. They've never changed the slogan. Some of the some some products change the slogan. They not did not. Ma- not Maxwell. No, House. I remember it too. And it's interesting because wasn't didn't Robert Young also do commercials for Maxwell House for years? He did. And then was he? Yeah, he did. He, he did because it was Joe DiMaggio that was Mister Coffee, right? Right. Yeah, but he was. He, would, he was sitting Maxwell with a House. mug. Yeah, he had a mug in front of him. I mean, he here was a sponsor that liked him. That's right. He stayed with them forever. Father Knows Best, May 25th, 1950. Robert Young is Jim Anderson. His wife on this series, Jean Vanderpile, she was Wilma on the, the Flintstones. Fre- on the Flintstones. On the Fred Flintstones. She was the she was <laughs> she was Wilma. And then B. Benaderet was was, uh, was Betty. Right. And Mel Blanc was Barney. And of right. course Alan Reed. Was Fred. Was Fred. Um, but this was a, a good show and uh, heard on NBC. Robert Young starring Father Knows Best. The announcer on this show, Bill Foreman, he was, uh, he sounds all really nice and really fun and all that. Well, guess what? He was the whistler. He played the whistler. So, yeah, I mean, you know, all he did was change his voice a little bit, Lisa, and then he was the whistler. Well, and on this, pre- and he was all like, what? hey. You pretend to be nice on this show, but when <laughs> but as soon as we walk out the door, your true colors come through. No, you should see what she's like to drive with, folks. I was driving her here. She was like, were we're driving, not in any hurry. We're driving, in other words, just slow down, You dude. know what that means, right? We're not in any hurry. <laughs> Could that you, means slow down. This is like Speed Racer. No, I'm just driving the speed limit. Speed Racer. Folks, you never, ever want to be listen to in me. the car driving with Lisa in the passenger You seat. are a fast Trust driver. Trust me on this. You don't. All right? Just slow down. We'll be back after these words. One of our listeners, and our listeners are the smartest listeners in all of radio, sent in a text saying that Robert Young also promoted Sanka later right. in his career. Right. Like after maybe the Marcus Welby MD days, he was uh, promoting Sanka. Now, I remember that. I remember well, Sanka. Well, Sanka was a decaf coffee. It was decaf only? Uh, I, they started as only decaf. I think it was the first decaffeinated coffee. See, I think Sanka is not only decaf, but regular too. No, I know, but, but it I like think it crystals. started. Crystals. I think it started as only a decaf coffee. Oh, really? I think it was the first decaffeinated coffee, like, mass-marketed. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, you're in advertising, so... Yeah, well, now know. I'm in radio. <laughs> <laughs> you switched careers. I've switched many times well, in between. <laughs> probably making a lot more money doing doing radio than you did uh, advertising. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Think of my... it's, not, it's not all about money, Lisa. I've learned Lisa's, that. Lisa's... Uh, you know what? Money's overrated. Is it? <laughs> Interesting, because so, we were just talking about. And you know, when you facts. go to the you go to the jewel, they don't even the want, they don't want money from you. You no. go to Woodman's, they well, don't want money. I was there today; they wanted my money. Really, they wanted God, not they me. Did. They just let me Spend just two hundred bucks at Jewel today. I, I fill up my card at Woodman's, and they just say, "Go right ahead. Just, you go ahead. You go ahead. Maybe you just smile real pretty. You don't need it. Well, then, I just had my teeth cleaned. I so. noticed that yeah. they look a little less yellow around the edges. <laughs> <laughs> but Senka, I could never drink. Sanka, I I just I tried it. You know, you I could I could never. Let me just say this: it's not Sanka. Any kind of instant coffee, instant coffee. I cannot drink instant coffee. 
Well, here's something you I'm may sort of or may not know snob. about me. I'm a little bit of a coffee snob. Just a coffee snob. <laughs> here's something you may or may not know about me. What's that? I, have never... I know everything about Well, here's thing. something new. Here's a new okay. tidbit. All right. I have never drank coffee. Come on. Ever. Never. You never had a sip of coffee. I may have had a sip just to well, taste then it. That's the, then but I've never some. had a cup of coffee in my life. But you drink tea, but not yeah, very... Not like, too often. This is what Lisa does with tea. <laughs> and this is the true. This is a true story. This is not an exaggeration. She warms up the water, you know, very hot. Makes the water hot. Then she takes a tea bag and she, she takes it. She holds it above the water, does one dip, and then throws it out. That's true. One dip. I only use decaffeinated tea, first of all. One dip in the water. That's it. Well, there's multiple reasons. So the water is still like watercolor. It's not really. (laughs) That's true. That's all she does. Yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, you know, it's dangerous. She's got some some (laughs) little quirks. Lisa has some quirks. Yeah. Definitely does. We all do. And you but don't you know want to be, you don't want to drive with as, her. If, that, if that's as bad as it gets, only dipping once in the tea bag, I mean, that's not so well, bad. what does that do? It's just like drinking hot water. There's Almost. no tea. There's no tea in there. Almost. It's very light. And I really like tea. I like yeah. tea. I like Earl Grey tea. No. No? It's too dark. <laughs> you like a nice light tea. Really? Like green tea. <sighs> yeah. Lisa Wolf. Yep. So uh, There's that's nobody quite like you. That's for sure. <laughs> you are one in a zillion. One in a zillion, and that's why There's I'm here. There's six billion people on Earth. You're one in six one billion. One in six billion. But then you add other other uh, planets. Well, you know what? That's why I get to work with you, because you are one in a six zillion, too. Well, thank you very much. I, I guess, <laughs> Hopefully that's a compliment. Uh, I think so. <laughs> so, uh, all right. We listen to Father Knows Best. We had some great shows. We have another great show in sure our do. next hour. We have Gunsmoke. And when you talk about Western series on radio, that has to be, when you're talking about adult Westerns now, I mean, you know, when you talk about Westerns, you think of The Lone Ranger, you think of Hopalong Cassidy, and things like that. But when you think of adult Westerns. Honestly, Gunsmoke is the first one that would come to my mind. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And then maybe have Gun Will Travel after that. And it was on television for so many years. Yeah, that airs on me, uh, on Antenna TV. It does. It, air, it airs all the time. You know, it airs all the time on Antenna TV. And I, what's great about it is on TV, it was, I think, even better. Most of the time I say the radio right. shows are better. But on I think Gunsmoke on TV was so good. I mean, James Arness was so great as Marshall Dillon and, you know, everybody else on there. And so, yeah, I, I flip through and watch Antenna TV. It's on there all the time. Yeah. Gunsmoke plays a lot. And well, like we were saying, they had a Father Knows Best, a marathon recently. They have a lot of great stuff that really do does coincide with a lot of the radio shows that we play here on absolutely. WGN. Yep. In the next hour, Gunsmoke, the man who would be Marshall um, from 1956. Plus, we will have our segment... Just the Facts, oh, yes. brought to you by Cat's Pride. That's in our next hour right here. And uh, don't forget, we're here every single Saturday um, at uh, 10 p.m., unless we are being uh, preempted for some reason. Next week, I think, just a half an hour. I think so we we're start, starting at 10.30, but start we'll, at 10:30. we'll still play five radio shows. All right, we'll stick around because we'll be back yep. right after the news. Hour five of the WGN Radio Theater. We're here every Saturday night from 10 p.m., 
until 3 a.m. in the morning, five full hours of classic radio. We play five of your favorite classic radio shows every single Saturday here on the greatest radio station in the world, WGN. Right, Lisa? Yes, world's greatest newspaper. We are here. How do you put up with me for five hours on a Saturday I, night? I ask myself that every Saturday. Do you every single every Saturday? Every single like Saturday. I, I think to myself, am I going to be able to get through it? And somehow I always Sitting do. Sitting next to me. I'm and... not too close. <laughs> yeah, this is a big studio. We're not that close We're to not, each other. You know, not bosom buddies here. Right. <laughs> Remember that show, Bosom I do. Buddies? I sure do. That was a, that was an interesting show for that, the time, Bosom Buddies. It, it was. You know? That's true. Uh, you know, for those of you who remember it. I, I do remember <laughs> it. <laughs> in this hour, we're going to tune into Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. A lot of people remember Gunsmoke as a television show, of course, but had a very long run on radio with a completely different cast on radio. William Conrad was U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon on television. Of course, uh, James Arness was Dylan. Um, and uh, that's coming your way in just a few minutes. Uh, you know what, though, Lisa? We haven't talked about this in a while. Remind Magazine. I'm very proud of this magazine. I've been working with Remind Magazine a long time. I write an article every issue, and uh, this comes out once a month. It's a four-color uh, magazine. It's actually uh, put out by the same people that put out TV guides, so you know you're getting quality. And Remind Magazine is all about nostalgia. It's all about uh, radio and TV and movies. And I write an article every month called uh, Radio 360, and we talk about um, a different um, radio show. Like, for instance, this month, in the month, uh, well, actually, this is a February issue. In the month of February, I talk about gangbusters. I haven't seen that issue yet. Yeah, you haven't seen this. No, the new one, brand new. Yeah, because, you know, the whole the whole issue is about the the mob. You see that? You have, like, uh, Scarface on the cover. You have the Sopranos on the cover. Um, Bonnie and Clyde, you see, right there. And so they always let me know ahead of time. And they say, okay, this issue is going to be about this or it's about that. And then I say, well, if it's about uh, the mob, well, gangbusters fought the mob. So then I wrote all about gangbusters. But anyway, this uh, this magazine is really cool, folks. Uh, check it out. Go to remindmagazine.com, and you save about 70% off the newsstand price when you order it on their website. But you can get this at any Barnes & Noble store or any Walmart store. It's on their newsstand at Barnes & Noble and Walmart. But uh, the best way is to go to their website, remindmagazine.com. Full-color uh, full catalog. This has, or not catalog, magazine, 63 pages. And look at that. Every single page is, is full color. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to read. Yep, Remind Magazine. Even for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right, well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to play our game. Just the facts, and then we're going to listen to Gunsmoke. Stick around. For News at 10, watch WGN, Micah Mater, Joe Donlin, Dan Roan, and Chicago's most trusted meteorologist, Tom Skilling. For TV News at 10, watch Chicago's very own WGN. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. This is our new segment, Just the Facts. Uh, we're going to be talking about 1956 since our episode this hour is Gunsmoke from the year 1956, a compilation of fun facts, trivia, and history. All right. All right. The first fact is 
1956, Elvis Presley appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show oh, on September 9th. Read right. 82.6% of American households watched that episode. But they did not film him from the waist down. That is true. Yeah, they filmed him from the waist up. See, you even knew that. They would not, yeah, they would not, you know, they were, the censor said, uh-uh, yep. he wiggles way too much. This is Elvis Presley, he's a sexy guy. Yeah. <laughs> not as sexy as I am. Well, no, of course not, that's a given. <laughs> I mean, but who is? When I mean, we after. film you, we're going to yeah. only go from waist up. Right, just go from my neck up. <laughs> okay. Because you wouldn't be able to handle it. Maybe we'll just Believe go from me, you, the eyes up. You would turn the TV off. <laughs> Let's leave about the chin will go from the top. <laughs> you mean, you mean uh, all my chins? That's what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Multiple chins. All right. Also, on July 9th of 1956, Dick Clark began hosting American Bandstand. Wow, it started in 1956? It sure did. All of this is 1956. Did you used to watch American Bandstand? Oh, of course. I did, too. You know, that's why I can dance so great today. Oh, it must be because of American Bandstand. Bandstand. Remember that that show, though? Remember the black and white version? They were all dancing. You know, I used to think those were really special people that got to dance up on the platforms. Yeah. And they had a lot more camera time than the regular groups. And I thought, well, that could be me. American Bandstand. Right? Wow. 1956. Also, now this is a really great fact. On uh, NBC introduced its multicolored peacock logo. Wow, that's when it came yep, out, huh? Yep, to entice people to buy that? color TVs manufactured by RCA, mm-hmm. which owned the network. Right, and they would make that 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 sound. You know, it was like the yep. peacock, and then the yep. sound. It would oh, like. Yeah. Yep, I remember that, that was all 1956. Wow. So gives you a little bit of uh, history into uh, 1956 and what was going on. Very, very cool, Lisa. Just the facts. Lisa has all the facts for you. Oh, yes. At the, well, uh, not all of them, but the, you know, a few important ones. The top anyways. of the hour, every hour here on the WGN Radio Theater. But right now, it is time for Gunsmoke. Now, Gunsmoke was an adult Western series. It was created by Norman McDonald and John Meston. Came to radio in 1952. Lasted all the way until 1961. And now, these were stories in and around Dodge City, Kansas, in the mid to late 1800s. And Marshal Matt Dillon was played by William Conrad. Parley Bear was Deputy Chester Proudfoot. Howard McNair was Doc Adams. Georgia Ellis was Kitty Russell. And Dillon was a lonely, very isolated man. He was toughened by a hard life. And it was very popular, I mean, because it was really an adult Western. This this was not like The Lone Ranger for kids or Hopalong Cassidy. This was for adults, a good Western. And you know what? It was so popular on radio that they did a, uh, a transition to television, and it became even more popular on TV. And it really paved the way for all kinds of other Westerns, like The Rifleman and Wagon Train and, you know, all the adult Westerns, Bonanza. Yeah. You know, these were all super, super popular on television. And all of those that we just mentioned air on our very own Antenna TV. Don't miss it, because they air on Antenna TV just about every single day and night. Right? Right. Yeah, we love Antenna TV. That's right. All right, we have a Gunsmoke episode for you now from March 18th, 1956. This is called The Man Who Would Be Marshal. Here's William Conrad in uh, Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. 
Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. this the marshal's office? Uh, yeah, come in, stranger. You're Marshal Dillon? I am. My name's Egan Marshal. Emmett Egan. I'm glad I know you. Uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. How do you do? Oh. The purpose of my visit may surprise you, Marshal. <laughs> well, if it doesn't mean trouble, it sure will. I've just deposited $50,000 in the bank here. Huh? That's a lot of money, Egan. Well, it's taken me ever since the war to earn it. I've been up in Chicago, Marshal, running cattle auctions for a man named Swift, but I'm through with that now. Oh? I'm going to try something new. Marshal, I don't intend any insult, but if you need money, name your price. (laughs) I'm afraid I don't follow you, Egan. I want your job. What? I want to be Marshal here. (laughs) All right, say it out, Egan. I'm serious, Marshal. No tricks to this. I've been to Washington, and the War Department's endorsed my application, but they tell me there are no openings, so I came to Dodge. I thought if I can somehow persuade you to quit, maybe they'll put me on here. I think you are serious. I am. It's simple enough. I'm tired of the kind of work I was doing, and I want to try this. Something exciting. Oh, I see. What would you advise me to do, Marshal? Go back to Chicago. You're a lot safer there. You think I'm not qualified to be a lawman? Well, you're wearing a gun. I'm accustomed to authority, Marshal. I was a major under General McClellan. Took my first bullet in the Chickahominy in 62. I see. Uh, Is this your first trip to the frontier, Mr. Egan? It was my first in 67. Uh Uh-huh. And I still advise you to go back to Chicago. No, Marshal. All right, Mr. Egan, you want this job so bad, you can have it, as far as I'm concerned. Now, Mr. Dillon... There's very little money in it, and absolutely no thanks. I've been a live target for every drunken bum and glory hunter in Kansas about long enough. You mean it, Marshal? Yeah. But on one condition. Yeah? That you hang around for a week. See what it's like. And then, if you still want it... Oh, I'll want it, all right. All right, then we'll start right now. I'm ready... What do we do first? 
You all set, Chester? My, yes, sir, I guess so. All right, then follow me. Why don't you sit down and rest a spell, Mr. Egan? No, thanks. You're going to wear yourself out walking up and down that way? Yeah. You got a match, sister. Mm-hmm. Here, Red. Here. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Dodd sure ain't very lively today, is it? Uh, not very. If I only had me a knife, I could do a little whittling. Oh, what happened to your knife, Chester? Well, it was about wore out, so I traded it to a small kid I know. Her <laughs> flipper. <laughs> Why don't you get yourself another one? Mr. Dillon, I am so mean poor, I just couldn't stand the outlay of another oh, knife. Oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. Hey, look there. Somebody hadn't ought to be in town. Oh, where? Who? That fella coming up the street, riding that sway back to old brood mare, see him? He looks like a farmer. <laughs> if you call a man whose wife hoes a ten-yard patch of mealy potatoes a farmer, then he's one, all right. You said he shouldn't be in town. He can't be very dangerous. He's dangerous to himself. Oh, what do you mean? Why, he gets a doggone drunk every time he comes in here. He can't hardly climb back up on that old mare. And when he does, he usually falls off summers before he gets home and lays out there on the prairie all night like a dead man. It's a pure wonder he ain't been at by something. Oh, Marshal, we've been hanging around this porch for three hours. I'm beginning to feel like a bum myself. Now, that's part of the job, Egan. Keeping an eye on things, we call it. Keeping an eye on things? You and Chester both are fighting to stay awake. Are you calling it quits, Egan? Oh, no. Of course not. Then let's go get a cup of coffee, huh? It'll be dark soon, and we can start making the rounds. What's the name of this place, Marshal? It's called the Long Branch. Oh, here comes somebody you ought to know. Evening, Mac. Oh, Kitty. How long have you been sitting here? No, not long. Uh, Kitty, this is Emmett Egan. How do you do, Miss Kitty? Mr. Egan? Oh, you sit down. Uh-huh. I, uh, I hear you may be our new Marshal. What? Now, how in the world... Well, Chester was in a while ago. It's true, isn't it? Well, it isn't exactly settled yet, Miss Kitty. But you want the job? Yes. Why? Well, let's say I was bored with what I was doing. Sure. That's happened to a lot of ex-soldiers. They can't stand peacetime. Uh, Me in particular, I guess. Why don't you re-enlist? The cavalry keeps busy out here. I tried that, Miss Kitty. 
He did. Back in 67. 67? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The Cheyenne and the Sioux were real active that year, weren't they? Yes, they were, but not where the cavalry was. Wait a minute. Uh, were you a General Hancock? That's right, Marshal. We took to the field for four months. We marched and countermarched all over this country, and then we returned to Fort Harker. Well, what was wrong with that? Well, all we did was burn one empty village, kill two young Cheyenne braves, both of whom we later found out were friendly. <laughs> it took 1,100 men to do that. Oh. Mr. Dillon. Yeah, what is it, Chester? I, I don't know for sure, but I hear there's some kind of trouble down at Moss Grimmick's stable. Well, huh? it's about time something happened around here. Yeah. Now, don't forget, Egan, when it does, somebody usually dies. What's the trouble here, men? Where's Moss Grimmick, Chester? Well, he ain't here, Mr. Dillon. They say Leonard Fibbs there is the one who knows about it. Oh, Fibbs, a little sodbuster? Yes, sir. Uh, hey, Fibbs, come here. What's going on here, Fibbs? Inside, Marshal. Back there in the stall. Oh, what's back there? Bad, Marshal, real bad. Don't nobody go in there. It's real bad. What is? Who's in there, Fibbs? Not even you, Marshal. Not nobody. Leave him alone, I'm warning you. Oh, he ain't got good sense, Mr. Dillon. No use talking to him. It's real bad in there. Something's got him scared half to death. I'm going to go take a look. You stay here, Chester. I'm going with you, Marshal. Look, Egan, I don't know what's in there. It could be a crazy man with a gun looking for blood. It could be anything. Action is what I came here for, Marshal, and you said I could hang around. All right. But you get out of the way if there's any shooting. I'm not entirely a novice with a gun, Marshal. No, but you're not a professional either. Now stay at least ten paces behind me. Right. See anything? No. It's Marshal Dillon. Who's in here? Come on, speak up. Maybe he's hiding, waiting for you. Well, he can't see me any better than I can see him. You're taking an awful chance, Marshal. You stay where you are, Egan. What? What's this? Ah. Chester, bring a lantern. All right, Egan. What is it, Marshal? Nothing we have to kill. What do you mean? You'll see when Chester brings the light. Oh, he's coming. What have we found, Mr. Dillon? Hold the lantern over here, Chester. That's your word. Oh, my goodness. Somebody's gone and hung, man. So that's it. That poor devil. Was this a lynching, Marshal? No, Egan, that's old Tom Sanders. He's been drunk for 20 years. Yeah, I guess he finally decided to break their habits. Well, you won't get any action out of this. Well, Egan, it's been nearly a week. 
Enough excitement for you? I must admit, Marshal, it's not quite what I'd expected. Somehow I had the idea Marshal was always busy doing things. You mean gunfighting? I've told you I don't think gunfighting's necessary. Yeah, I remember. Any man accustomed to command should be able to control these Dodge City ruffians without much trouble. I only draw my gun as a last resort, Egan. And besides, you haven't seen any of these men in action yet. I still want the job, Marshal. Yeah, I know. Oh, uh, Matt? Yeah, come on in, Doc. Uh, say, Matt, you'd better get over the Texas Trail. Oh? You know those fellas Gear and Bozeman? Yeah, I know them. Well, they've got that poor little Leonard Fibbs at the bar there, and they're trying to make him pay for their drinks. He's broke, of course, so they're beating him up. They're doing it real slowly, bit by bit. I tell you, it just makes you sick to watch it. All right, Doc. Wait, Marshal. Yeah, what? Let me handle this. Look, Egan, Gear and Bozeman may be a couple of bullies, but that doesn't mean they're not dangerous. They are. Are you afraid I might be able to handle them, Marshal? Well... Okay, go ahead. Here, take my badge. Tell him you're a deputy. Thank you, Marshal. You gotta learn one way or the other. I knew you wouldn't leave Mr. Egan all alone. Nobody will look for us coming in the back door. And let's move a little closer. Egan's facing him, Mr. Dunn. Yeah. Oh, look at poor little Peter. They got him all bloody. What makes you think you can do this to a man? Is there no law where you come from? We come from Dodge, Mr. Deputy. Where do you come from? Are you Bozeman or Gear? I'm Bozeman, Mr. Deputy. I'm the one who generally does the talking, but we both do the fighting. You're out of order, Bozeman. What's that? I said you're out of order. I will not tolerate your insolence. I'm not sure, Mr. Deputy. But are you saying you don't like us? That's enough. You and Gear will turn and face the bar while I take your guns. You're the most doggone foolish man I ever saw, Mr. Deputy. Do as I say. Why? Because you're wearing a badge? That's reason enough. Now, Mr. Deputy... That may be reason enough There'll for you. There'll be no shooting. I'm ordering you to face the bar. I guess there's no use talking to you, Mr. Deputy. I'll take him along here. He's, he's going to... Hold it, Bozeman! All right, that's enough. I'll go ahead, Bozeman. Try it again. Now, wait, Marshal. You knew he couldn't handle a gun. You know I can, is that it? Your gun against two of us? Quit talking, Bozeman. Don't try it, Gear. All right, then do as my deputy told you. Face the bar. Sure. Sure, Marshal. Chester. Yes, sir. You want me to lock him up, Mr. Dillon? Here are the guns, Chester. 
I'll be at Doc's. Maybe he can save Bozeman here from hanging. Yeah, it's getting light out, Doc. It generally does this time of morning. Yeah, but I'm not generally sitting up waiting for a man to die. He isn't going to die, Matt. And I saw what that bullet did to him. You feel guilty, don't you, Matt? <sighs> Wouldn't you, Doc? Yes, I guess I would. Doc? Oh. What? Well, he's conscious. How do you feel, Egan? Pretty fair, Doc. I've been lying here, listening to you talk. Oh, you mean you've been conscious for some time? Half hour, maybe. I wanted to get my head clear. A few weeks in bed and it'll be clear enough. I guess I was lucky. If that bullet had gone one inch to the left, you'd have died on the floor, Egan. You were lucky, all right. (laughs) God protects fools and drunkards, isn't it? Marshal Dillon. Yeah. I heard you saying you felt guilty about this. It wasn't your fault. And I should have known what had happened. But I heard you telling Doc how it happened. You faced them the same way I did. They didn't shoot you. It's a little different with me, Egan. Oh. This is my profession. I've handled enough men to be professional. Egan, why do you think Bozeman did what I told him to do? Because he knew you'd shoot if he didn't? He not only knew I'd shoot, he knew I'd kill him. He knows I can handle a gun pretty well. And that part of the profession they don't teach in the Army. Takes years and years to learn. Well, I can't complain any more about there not being enough action, can I, Marshal? Hey, your week's up today, Egan. You want the job? (laughs) Marshal, you ever been in California? Not for some time. I hear things are pretty active out there. I'll write you and tell you all about it. there were a lot of ways for death to come to a man on the frontier. All of them hard. But next week, a man meets death the hardest way of all, at the end of a rope. But that was the West. Good night. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were John Daner, James Nusser, and Harry Bartell. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. 
And that's Gunsmoke from March 18, 1956, with a man who would be Marshall. is heard on CBS Radio, starring William Conrad as U.S. Marshal Matt Dillon. Also in that cast, Jane, uh, John Daner, James Nusser, Harry Bartell, Howard McNear. And Parley Bear and Georgia Ellis with George Walsh doing the announcing. Now, that was originally sponsored by Chesterfield and L&M Filters, but we had to remove those cigarette commercials. We don't air cigarette commercials on the radio. Hope you enjoyed Gunsmoke. And speaking of Gunsmoke, Lisa, Gunsmoke is one of the five free radio shows that you can get. Uninterrupted, complete episodes, five digitally remastered free shows because you are a listener to this radio show. It's our way of thanking you for being a listener. Just go to our website, 100radioshows.com, the number one zero zero radioshows.com. When you log on to that website, you will see at the top, you enter your email address, and we will instantly send you five shows, Fibber McGee and Molly, Gunsmoke, Jack Benny, Suspense, and Richard Diamond, Private Detective, digitally remastered by the great Mike Costello. And they're sent to you, as I said, instantly to your email. And those links will never expire. That's our way of saying thank you. But if you want to purchase any shows at that website, and there are hundreds of shows at that website, make sure that you use the promo code RADIO at checkout. Promo code is RADIO. And you will save 70% off the regular price. And that's our, again, way of uh, thanking you for listening to this radio show. 100 Radio Shows. Let's take a quick break, and then it's more here on the WGN Radio Theater. Lisa, we're going on a cruise August 1st of this year. I can't believe it's here. We've been talking about it and thinking about it for so long, and it's almost that time. You know what? I could use a cruise right now with this weather. I need a vacation. This is nuts. This is cold. This is really cold. I'm wearing, like, two jackets, like, two uh, hats. Well, hopefully it'll warm up a little bit between now and August, but either (laughs) way, it'll be great to get away, have a classic radio clues and take a take a vacation with Lisa and Carl. That's right. Going uh, to Bermuda, August 1st. Right. We're going on Oceana Cruise Line, which oh, is a yeah. luxurious cruise line. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to bake in the sun. And at the same time, we're going to... You're ex- not going to be baking well, in the sun. I'll just... You she know, doesn't go in the bake sun. Bake a little bit in the Lisa? sun. We'll have a little uh, classic radio fun. And we'll explore Bermuda, all of the above. And of course, you'll be at this casino and having <laughs> some big dinners every no, but, night. But let me tell you something. When it is sunny out, yep. I will be by the pool. I will be getting some sun. Well, I will be by the pool too under an umbrella <laughs> <laughs> with your floppy hat yeah, that Luann sure. got for That's you. That's right. I'm waiting. And, and you know, barking orders to me. Get me a pina colada. No, get no, me this. No. Get I'm me gonna, that. I'm going to need She'll my, be barking my orders. cabana boy will do that for me. You sit. Yeah, we're going to get to know our listeners so much better. We can't wait to meet you out there in Radio Land. Uh, come with us on our cruise. It's August 1st, 2020. Right. We're working with a great travel agency, Keen Luxury Travel. They've given us a great group rate. It is a limited offer because when it's full, it's full. Here is the number. Give them a call. It is 800-856-1155. That's 800-856-1155. 
1-800-227-1155. Or you can go to WGNRadioTheater.com and you can click on the cruise banner and learn some more there as well. Yep, but if you call that toll-free number, they'll answer all your questions for you. They'll walk you through the whole thing. And uh, this uh, sails out of New York, and it's seven nights. It's going to be incredible. And we are going to have uh, some radio reenactments. We're going to do trivia contests, a cocktail party. And prizes, because who doesn't yeah, love WGN Radio Theater prizes? But the real prize is getting to hang with us. The real prize is you, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be a lot of fun, so make sure you check it out. Come with us uh, to Bermuda. All right, now next week, next Saturday, we start uh, half an hour late. Yeah, we're starting at 10.30, so we are going to start with a 15-minute Vic and Sade episode. Right. And then we have The Shadow, Right. Broadway Is My Beat, Dimension X, and Nick Carter, Master Detective. Wow, so good lineup. All right, so don't for, uh, don't forget, folks, next Saturday we start a half an hour late. We're uh, beginning at 10.30, and we'll go to 3 o'clock in the morning right here on the greatest radio station in the world, WGN. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Shante Garth, our uh, producer, and Mike Costello, our executive producer. And, of course, thank you out there in Radio Land for listening. We'll see you next week.